Hi guys, I'm the Impaired Grappler and welcome to my podcast. Today we have a very special guest, it's my friend Rob Williams who's up in Queensland at the moment. Uh, yeah, so we basically get into his, his early days, uh, including sort of doing challenge matches and that, uh, meeting the Gracies, going to Brazil, uh, his history of injuries, his neck and back um, issues and uh, getting amnesia and recovering from that, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, he talks about sort of meeting Pedro Sara and the impact of that on on his jiu-jitsu. Um, also talk about uh, his competition days. Uh, then there was a sort of act of God. There was a power outage. So, uh, yeah, um, we came back a couple of days later and finished off the conversation, which ended up making it a bit of a longer one, but it was still pretty good. Um, yeah, we came back and spoke about a home invasion of his uh, that he had and uh, his mountain biking, including um, building trails and coaching and his business and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we go into psychology, uh, talk about routines, lists, mental health and the impacts of the lockdown um, on mental health. And then he turned the tables and basically asked me a few questions and spoke about my kind of issues, my history, my injuries. Um, and then we go into sort of diet and... Yeah, we finish up talking about moving through the ranks. So, hope you guys enjoy, and we'll catch you later. Us. Hi guys, I'm the Impaired Grappler, and welcome to my podcast. Today we have a special guest from north of the border, someone who who left when he could uh, a few years ago. So it's uh, Rob Williams, who's now in uh, sunny Queensland. So uh, welcome, Rob. My pleasure. My pleasure. So uh, yeah, just want to. Just touch on a few things, just have a bit of a conversation, just a friendly chat. So uh, what's things like north of the border without the stringent uh, lockdowns? Well, it's beautiful and sunny and nice and warm. And um, I basically live in a forest here, so I kind of live in paradise, <laughs> surface paradise, ironically. But no, everything's great. Even, even during like when we had a lockdown, I think, one of the one of the things that um, has allowed Queenslanders to kind of do so well during it is the fact that um, there's just so much space here. Like you can go to the beach or go to the forest, or we're not living on top of each other or anything like that. Um, like you know, Melbourne's a super densely populated city, um, whereas we're not. It's very spread out. We've got a giant state, so it's pretty easy for everyone to kind of avoid one another. So. Life didn't really change that much for me at all. I, um, I spent most of my time as a professional trail builder building mountain biking and hiking trails in the forest. So I really don't see anybody at all. The other guys on the crew were always 50 or 100 metres from each other most of the time. So, um, like, I mean, I'm also a mountain bike coach now. So, like, coaching all the, the kids' groups and stuff like that, like, that had to change. Um, but for, for a lot of people, there didn't seem to be a, well, the people that I associate with anyway, everybody just mountain biked more. So bike sales have gone through the roof, forests are overrun with people on bikes and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like up here it's been fine. And, and even if you do get isolated, it's beautiful and warm and it's nice to be outside and everything else, but... I can't imagine middle of winter being locked down in Melbourne. It, it was it was horrible anyway. It was all yeah. cold, miserable and everything. And you'd go out wearing big jackets and all that. And then just add on top of that um, the inability to be able to go out and 
get all the vitamin D that's going to make you feel good and, you know, and all these sorts of things. It's It's got to be awful down there. So, um, yeah, I really feel for everyone down there. And, well, yeah, it hasn't been that bad. Of winter, cold-wise. It's not a great situation, so. Yeah, it's been, yeah. Oh, it's, a, uh, it's pretty tough, but, uh, well, yeah. Especially so. for the jiu-jitsu guys, right? Mm. So for a lot of people, and myself included, and many others, like, um, one of the things I love about jiu-jitsu is that for people who maybe kind of are not the most sociable creatures in the world, it allows them a way to be sociable, a way to connect with other people, hmm. like choking and strangling and beating each other up. You know, it's kind of like your way of connecting with people. I think especially for guys, you know, guys are not the best at, at connecting and communicating and showing closeness and being intimate. And yet the great irony is that jiu-jitsu is nothing but physical intimacy. Like you can't do it without touching the other person. So I, I think for a lot of people drawn to jiu-jitsu and, and for the guys who maybe struggle to develop intimacy and connection with people, they're probably missing that connection with those people the most. And, um, and I really feel for the jiu-jitsu community worldwide through all of us. You know, I see, I hate seeing um, all the jiu-jitsu coaches trying to do like Zoom classes by themselves on the floor and try and, maintain a semblance of connection with their students it's it's it, it hurts me something terrible to see the people that i love and care for worldwide kind of have to who usually their academies are full of thousands of people and and you see giant photos with everyone hugging everybody and strangling each other and doing all these great things and then it's it, then you've got photos of guys by themselves on facebook and that's what their life is now and, and, like, it kills me to see that. Yeah, it's, it's super difficult watching it as, as someone who, like, although I'm not a full-time coach or even a part-time coach or anything now, like, I know what that person feels like. You know, I did it for so long. And if, if I was in their situation, I, I don't know how I'd be handling it. Like, financially, you'd be getting crushed and emotionally, you'd be distraught and, and it would be an incredibly difficult time for, I mean, I, me being me, I would probably just be wrestling with people in my garage and just not telling anybody, like, <laughs> you know. And if we all got coronavirus, well, it's our own damn fault. Like, you know, jiu-jitsu is very addictive for a number of reasons and, you know, the, the, the intimacy and connection that we form as, as guys, I think, is a large part of that. Yeah, yeah well, that's a, that's a main thing I take out of uh, the jiu-jitsu is just the connection it forces me to actually be human and connect with other people. <laughs> like, yeah, um, I, I was, I, I, I grew up in a pretty difficult family and I was, I don't know about socially inept, but I, I was a loner and kicked to myself and preferred individual sports and, and, and all these sorts of things. And the martial arts that I pursued were all striking arts because the other guy was there and I could just hit him and do things to him and, 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 and I enjoyed the violence of hurting somebody else and doing these things. And then when it came to jiu-jitsu, it was very confronting for me, not just did I get my ass kicked, but um, like the person is right literally in your face, breathing on you, choking you, watching you as you're going to sleep or, you know, watching you struggle and there's nothing you can do. You're stuck underneath somebody and like you can't, you can't just 
you can't hit them, you can't do anything to them. Like you have to accept that you're just there and have to deal with the situation. Like <laughs> the number of times I wanted to just cry on the mat when I first started, but you know, the, the ego on me wouldn't let me, but like, yeah, there's some horrendous early on battles that went for hours and I just refused to give in. And, mm. and yeah, it's, yeah. Just, yeah. And I think that of all the martial arts and all the sports that I've been a part of, like it's by far the one that really helps you kind of get in touch with who you need to be, you yeah. know. To, to move through life and become a more complete person and things like that. And it, I think it attracts a lot of martial arts in general, just attracts a lot of damaged people, you know, um, because we're vulnerable. That's why we pursue it. We want to feel safe and we want to feel strong when we feel weak and things like that. So I think that when it, when you first get there, like you don't get all those things, you don't get strong, you don't get, self-confidence you don't get all that initially initially you just feel terrible well in the old days like academies have changed a lot you know yeah. when I, when i first went along i i mean i was a pain in the ass i was like a 95 kilo wrecking machine and i just wanted to kill everybody so i walked into the academy with a friend of mine after challenging a whole bunch of other jiu-jitsu schools that night um and literally walked in with our t-shirts torn with blood all over our hands hmm. from fighting other schools and walked in and just said, right, let's fight. Like, what do you got? You know, not hmm. knowing that there was a big difference between Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And then I really got my ass kicked <laughs> and got beat up and choked unconscious a lot and stuff like hmm. that and um, just thought it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, that, so that was around the 90s? Mid uh, 90s. 90s. Summer of 97. Summer of 97, okay. Summer yeah. of 97, yeah. Yeah, sweet. And it was like, so back then there was like hardly anyone around. There was what, maybe one one black belt in the country at the time maybe? Well, I was in New Zealand. Brazilian. I was in New Zealand oh, at the time. So, okay. So um, when I started, there were no black belts. Like there was mm. none. Our coach was a Pan Am blue belt champion um, and he was a, a microbiologist. So he would travel the world going to microbiology seminars all over the place and um, wherever he went, he would just, he told us he would get the course notes for the, the, the seminar conference he was going to, and then he'd run around all the local jiu-jitsu academies, learning everything he could and making notes and compiling videos on it, mm. and then come back to the academy, which had like maybe 10 guys in it at that stage, and just try and practice all the stuff that he'd learned, you know. And, and so that's, that's, we were down the South Island of New Zealand, isolated from pretty much everywhere. But he was traveling the world, um, getting all the knowledge from everybody that he could and, and bringing it to us. So um, in 1998, maybe, mm. uh, John Will came over and did a seminar. And that was the first black belt I'd ever seen mm. you know, in my life. And uh, he invited me to come to Melbourne, right? So that's how I ended up in Melbourne because John Will's like, hey, if you want to come and train, like, you know, hit me up. I didn't know he was in Torquay, like Geelong rather, right? So I got to Melbourne, got my security license, found somewhere to live. I'm like, right, let's get to jiu-jitsu. And it was like two hours away or something. And I'm like, what? I thought you were in Melbourne. So I was like, bummer. So then I, I hooked up with Tyrone Cross who had uh, a jiu-jitsu academy 
And um, I didn't know about this whole Gracie Machado war going on. So I walk in and all my Gracie Jiu-Jitsu stuff into this Machado Academy. Mm. Everybody wants to kill me. I'm happy to punch on. Let's go. And it nearly came to blows every night. And I was like, man, what's going on here? This is just crazy. Um, mm. Unbeknownst to me, I was living just around the corner from the Gracie Academy in Sakilda. So Peter DeBean's Academy. So I, I literally walked home a different way one night and walked straight past the Gracie Academy. And I was like, holy cow. There's a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu mm. Academy here. Incredible. Mm. Went upstairs. Um, Pete Devine was teaching in Malaysia at the time, doing a seminar series. And um, so I was like, I just walked in. At that stage, I was like the highest ranked guy in the academy because like Jiu-Jitsu had just started. So I'm like, oh, do you want to teach us? I'm like, okay. So all of a sudden I'm teaching at Pete Devine's mm. Academy. We've never even met. And um, yeah. It was it was real interesting because <laughs> no, everyone learned to do leg locks, right? Mm. So I'd been training with a bunch of Russian guys doing nothing but leg locks for a long time, mm. and so I was teaching leg locks at Pete's place, and they don't learn leg locks. Mm. So, <laughs> so some dude came in and taught us all leg locks. So Pete turns up, he walks through the door, right? I'd been there for like three weeks teaching them. And Pete walks through in his, in his civilian clothes. And I, I see who it is, so I thought, I'll play a joke, right? So I'm like, and I did the same with Hoyler and most of the guys that I meet. Um, I pretend I don't know who they are. So I'm like, hey, how you doing? I'm Rob. Welcome to the academy. I'll get you a gear. We'll get you started, right? And he's like, shocked. And then I'm like, no, I know who you are, Pete, and all the rest. And uh, he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, was, I turned up three weeks ago. They wanted to learn leg locks. We've been, you, you're doing what? Oh, we've been doing leg locks every class. And he's mm. like, well, we don't do leg locks here. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> Bad me. <laughs> but um, I, I stayed there for probably, I don't know, six months or so. And uh, he kind of used me as the, what do they call them? Um, Pedro talks about them all the time. The enforcer, right? So, so I was like the enforcer guy, like 95, 96 kilos, you know, and and I liked scrapping. So any new guy that walked through the door that wanted to do like the Gracie challenge or mm. thought he was tough, people would go, hey, go see Rob in the corner. He'll sort you out, you know. And, um, yeah, it was pretty funny for, for quite a while. So what, what was it like with all the challenges back, back then? Was it... Was it For me, that many back in Melbourne? Or? Um, well, I was one of those guys. I was that guy, right? I walked into the academy and challenged them, but mm. I didn't know anything. I didn't, I was just, my, I was doing Aikido. I've done a lot of different martial arts all my life. And it was my Aikido instructor who said, hey, man, you should go and try jiu-jitsu. Like you're a real physical guy and you, you love human mechanics hence why i was drawn to aikido and he goes it's kind of like real physical aikido wrestling kind of stuff so uh so i thought okay well I'll, my mate was a pro boxer so he and i decided to go around the three or four jiu-jitsu schools in our area and just test them like that was that's what we did we just walked in and said we'll fight you because if they couldn't beat us up we didn't want to train them. so that's how i ended up uh starting I was that guy. And then because we, you know, notoriety of jiu-jitsu, like the UFC had 
started maybe I guess like five or six years before or something, maybe five years before. So we had the UFC playing in the academy when I was a white belt, like day one. And I was working as a security guard in a big nightclub and I used to get the UFC videos and take them, take them to work and put them up on the, on the big screen in the nightclub, like 50 feet wide, this giant screen of like, you imagine UFC 1, right, going on on this 50-foot screen in the middle of the nightclub, 2,500 people on the dance floor. It was, it was mad in my, mm. my bosses. So it just started to get popular you know, and then like I won the, the Nationals first year, so I was in the paper, so people would challenge me on the door and then people were coming in constantly to challenge us in the academy because it was like that, um, what was it, um, anytime, anywhere, any place kind of thing that was going on. So we were getting challenged all the time, even as white belts. The coach would be like, who's up for fighting? And we would just fight. Like we'd beat the snot out of each other all night, every night, um, the thing at our, our jiu-jitsu academy, the academy of combat was that you had to be able to kick, punch, throw, grapple and do weapons. So it was a giant Thai boxing academy. Um, and um, then, of course, he found out and they did a lot of weapons stuff there, Filipino discriminatory kind of stuff. And then jiu-jitsu was like the last art that had come along that had joined this like trilogy. So because he wanted people to become complete martial arts, if you wanted to get graded in jiu-jitsu, you had to get graded in the other things as well or at least be competent in them. So um, with all my other martial arts background, then I thought this was just an excellent idea and I believed in, you know, complete martial artist is a great idea. So we were doing challenges then. Then when I came to Melbourne, I, I didn't really have a plan to become a, a jiu-jitsu coach at all. I, when I was in New Zealand, I wanted to go fight in the UFC and everybody told me, with all the other martial arts that I'd done, then like a hundred percent, like I was watching the guys in the early UFCs going, these guys can't fight. They don't know what they're doing. Um, the strikers were good at striking, but none of them could wrestle or grapple. And then nobody could throw. And then the guys that could throw, couldn't strike. And I was kind of pretty well-rounded. So all my friends were just like, holy cow, you were made, tailor-made for this. And so I, uh, got in contact with Helson Grace and I got in contact with Ken Shamrock who was running the Lions Den. Ken said, come over. And I said, look, I'm going to go to Australia and train under this John Will black belt guy and get better at grappling and then I'm coming to the Lions Den. So that was my original plan, right, was yeah. to go to the UFC via Australia. Um, uh, so the thing with John Will didn't really happen. Um, I ended up with Pete and then, you know, we, we ended up going our own ways. And I kind of, Melbourne isn't a really violent society, right? Like Sydney and Brisbane with the surf culture has a lot, got a lot more going on and rugby league and stuff. And so Melbourne was more kind of this coffee culture, kind of slightly sophisticated city. So there was no real violence, even working in all the nightclubs that I worked in, like there was very little violence compared to the clubs in New Zealand I was working in. Mm. So... It, that started to pacify me. I was in less fights. There was a less violent kind of culture. Um, I was feeling less threatened. Now I'm kind of doing jiu-jitsu with this gi on. I'm not hitting people. And, and, and like, MMA was illegal at that stage. So I'm like, well, there's no MMA outlet. So I started getting kind of more interested in this jiu-jitsu thing. Um, ended up, so 
I ended up leaving leaving Pete Bean and my I had a whole bunch of students. So I'm like, well, I'll just teach you what I know and I'll do what my coach did, right? Run around and get knowledge and do all this sort of stuff. And it was after doing that for a while that I'm like, I've got to get graded here. I'm like, I'd I'd been blue belt forever. I'd been winning everything nonstop for years and years and years. I think I was blue belt for like four years. And so um, Pete had said that he would look after me in terms of grading and stuff, and then things changed. So I thought, right, well, I need to, I want to stay on this crazy path. Like, who who can I go see? And I'm like, I can't go to Brazil. I don't speak Portuguese. They're not going to understand me. And I found Helsing Gracie in Hawaii. And I'm like, I know Helsing. I sent him that, that message or email or letter or whatever it was back in those days. He sent me like a whole box full of Helsing Gracie paraphernalia, hmm. the stuff that got me in trouble with the Machados early on. So um, I'm like, right, I'm going to go see Helsing. And I didn't even tell him. I just turned up on his doorstep, right, you know, and I was asleep again on my gi outside the academy, um, and he's like, what are you doing? Because it was a Sunday, apparently. I got my days messed up with traveling. And um, so I'm like, let's train. He's like, no, I'm here to do book work. Let's train. No, so he goes, come back tomorrow. So um, stayed there for about a month or so, trained with the guys pretty intensely. There's a big tournament there. I ended up winning that. Um, so me and the Helsing and Gracie guys were pretty tight. Um, uh, I see you did a, a podcast. Oh, no, it wasn't yours. There's a thing with Phil Cardella earlier that I saw pop up on Facebook. So I'm good friends with Phil and all the guys in Hawaii, very good friends with Halson, very good friends with Mike, Mike Stewart Jr. now. Um, and so Halson was, I would say, instrumental without a doubt in the change of me as a person, you know. Um, I'd been there for, I don't know, a week maybe. <laughs> and... Uh, all the guys are like, right, because in New Zealand it was really common for us to, like, kill each other all week. Friday night was fight night. So because we had all the different arts in the place and everyone hated the jiu-jitsu guys, so we would have, like, no rules fights on Friday nights in the full-size boxing ring. So you put your name on a board, put your weight, what you want to do, and you fight on Friday nights. Everyone pulls out the plastic chairs and bottles of bourbon. They get drunk. Everyone fights. And then you go out to nightclubs and then you fight in the nightclubs. And that's just, that was normal. That's part of the fight culture. So then I get to Hawaii. I'd seen Helson and Gracie's in action. I knew he was a pretty aggressive kind of guy. And then he's like, we'll go, we're going to go to a bar later. Do you want to come? Yeah, right. So I'm all amped up. We're going to punch on. It's going to be great. And we go to a juice bar. Like he's vegetarian or something, does yoga. Like we're drinking juice. I'm like, what, what are we doing? When are we going out? Who are we going to fight? He's like, what are you doing, man? Settle down. Like, So it was funny that anybody that knows Helson and the rest of the Gracie family, that of everybody, it's Helson telling me to settle down, right? Hey, man, like you don't need to be so angry all the time. You don't have to be so aggressive all the time. Because yeah, when that, I fought, when yeah, I fought that, doing that sounds shit, funny. Yeah, it is. If you know all the crew, right, it's very funny. Mm. And, um, and so... I was void of a father figure for a really long time and here's Helson kind of 
the guy that I would, the last guy I, would, I, I thought would give me that sort of advice going, man, chill out. We're just having some, some, some juices and some salads and we're going to get up early and go surfing and do some yoga and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll have some good jujitsu. And I'm like, what is going on here? I don't get this. It's the last thing I expected. But it was kind of permission from somebody a long way up the chain saying, hey, look, you know, like this is how you're going to get better at jujitsu. This is, you don't need to be like, my dad was the total opposite. You know, he was in the uh, Rhodesian military. And as a kid growing up, if I didn't come home with scalps, if I wasn't like trying to break people on the mat doing judo, if I wasn't breaking bones and knocking people out, even at a young age, you know, I'd get a hiding at home, you know. And I won like a karate trophy when I was young. I came home real excited with it. And he's like, did you knock everybody out? I'm like, it was a points tournament. And he's broke the trophy over his knee and kicked the shit out of me. So, like, that's the way I was brought up, right? Like, yeah. Cobra Kai. <laughs> worse, <laughs> right? So, so like, I, I, got, I got asked to leave, like, most of the martial arts that I joined when I was young because I was just, like, over-the-top violent trying to kill everybody there. And um, so now I've got Helson. Like he's like second in charge in the Grail, third below Helio, now telling me like I don't need to be like this, hmm. and I, it was revolutionary, and I was quite confused. Um, and so then Hoyler turned up. Hoyler had a no rules fight going on in Hawaii at the time. Met Hoyler. Hoyler's like, hey man, come to Rio next year. Come to the World Champs and come to the Academy and 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 so like then that. You know, connecting me with Hoyler. Um, of course, I turn up in Rio, no gi. Like, with no gi, I didn't even take a gi to Rio with me, right? And um, so I'm on the mat for, I don't know. Well, I wasn't allowed to train. I didn't have a gi, so I sat on the gi for, like, on the on the mat for, like, eight hours the first day. And then Hoyler goes to go home. He's like, where are you staying? I go, I'm staying with you, aren't I? Hmm. He's like, what are you talking about? I go, well, you invited me to Rio, man. Like, you can't invite me here and, like, not put me up. Hmm. So who did he call? And you know who he called, probably. Who do you think he called? Our professor. Bruno. Bruno? Bruno's the that, right? <laughs> professor. <laughs> so Bruno. that's how Bruno and I met. Mm, so okay. called Bruno, Bruno turns up, and then I stay with Bruno for a couple of months every year, and I'm part of the Gracie team. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, Bruno's another, another interesting character. Real interesting, right? Yeah. Really funny guy. And he, it was, it was, it's so funny, like hearing from multiple sources about the same periods of jiu-jitsu. Like, I mean, mm. all the stuff that was going on in Rio with all the challenge matches and Hicks and fighting guys at the beach and, and like the whole Machado Gracie war that was going on. And I'd heard it from all these different angles. Um, and there's, there's, but I don't know, it was kind of like this almost kind of quiet, kind of bystander, mm. not, not, like deeply entrenched in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, but not a part of the family himself directly. Mm. Um, and then very good friends with, with Hickson and everybody else. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was, and all, I did, again, I didn't, I didn't expect any of this. It all just kind of happened. I wasn't like looking to become a, a, a Gracie affiliate or anything like that. Um, uh, they asked me to, to, to represent them because I just turned up and I had this attitude and, um, you know, like at that stage, then I'd kind of settle down a bit, but like also 
I wouldn't back down from a challenge. So when I go to Rio and then some Brazilian guy that doesn't speak English, like, has attitude with me, then I'm like, okay, like, mm-hmm. let's do this. I don't care. I'm fine with this. And they really like that, you know, like mm-hmm. they like that kind of bravado yeah. and self-confidence. And, and, and um, it was, it was Holker actually that said, Hey man, like, what's this whole grand zero thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, well, that's just the name of my academy. You know, we fire on the ground, my academy's in the city. And he goes, where's the Gracie thing? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, and he goes, you should represent us, man. We like you a lot. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not paying affiliate fees. I've been through all that drama before yeah. and seen all these things collapse and explode because of that. Yeah, and if you so, start using their name, you know, there could be issues with that. Why are you using our name? I'd seen so many of that, and that happened so much because in the early days, there wasn't like professional contracts. It was like yeah. a... a shake or an elbow bump or something or whatever it was and and people were like yeah man like i'll pay you this per month whatever and then something happens and you know you got fighters man everybody's a fighter of course and then they wonder why there's conflict you know <laughs> you've got fighters doing business deals with other fighters and there's no written agreement of course it's going to go south right yeah. so i've seen all that and i'm like no like i'm not interested in that but like if you'd like me to represent you then you know I don't know. Have a word to Hoyle. Hoyle's kind of my coach or whatever. We'll work something out if you want. I'm ha- I'd am i love to represent you guys, but, like, I'm not paying affiliation fees, mm. you know. And then Hoyle had a word to me. Hey, Holker said this. and We would like to do this. So I'm like, all right. Like, I'll tell you what. You guys can come to my academy anytime you want, yeah? And you can run seminars there and take every seminar, yeah? Because it was tradition back in the day, I don't know what it's like now, when you run a seminar, the, 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 the school hosting the seminar would put like an extra 10% on top and that would be a little money for them, right? That was kind of the, the dumb mm. thing. So I'm like, no, I'm not going to take one cent because what they what, what, what were they doing with that 10%? Paying their affiliation fees, right? Mm. So I'm like, well, let's just do away with all that silliness, right? Let's just do like a barter mm. system, right? So I'll represent you. Um to the best of my ability and, 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 you know, I was deeply entrenched in Gracie Jiu Jitsu and stuff like that, the whole philosophy behind it. And, um, so I'm like, and then you can come to my academy. So I had Salo and, uh, I mean, Shanda come over, Salo might've come once. Shanda used to come over every year. Hoyler would come every year. Um, Hoist, the whole family started coming over and doing seminars at my place and things like that. And it was all going great. You know, and it just kind of worked out because I don't know, like there's not much to it. Just keep it real simple. Yeah, so my relationship with them deepened and then uh, I was like a purple belt over there. And then Hoyler was like, do you know Bruno Pano? And I'm like, yeah, we smash this team, you know, like, you know, <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? Like, he's one of my students. He should, he should be your coach over there. You guys should be friends. And I'm like, oh, he's under you. He's like, yeah, I'll introduce you. I'm like, okay, cool. So then then that kind of formalized a relationship with me and Bruno Pano, and he was kind of my Australian coach then. So I'd travel up to Sydney and 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 um, train under him. Eventually got my black belt under him. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was kind of a funny way to kind of go about the whole thing. Mm. It's like 
you know, what, what was happening with my coach kind of eventually ended up happening with me. And then I was traveling around getting all this random knowledge. And then eventually an affiliation was kind of made and met the guys. And I don't know, I just, I think that meeting all the, all the, the Gracie family members that I did, um, I don't know. I never treated them as particularly special. I think that, you know, what they've done is special, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't treat them any different than anybody else. I think that everybody deserves respect equally, but I don't know. I was just like, I've always trained under super high level coaches and all my martial arts. So like the Gracie family have done amazing things, but in terms of training under high level guys, it was normal for me. And um, I guess, having a lack of father figure, I kind of had these mentors as father figures. So I had a kind of a different relationship that I was, I guess, subconsciously seeking from them and getting from them. That was maybe a little bit more, more intimate and a little bit more personable than, than like just a student. And it kind of been like that all my life. So especially when I met Halson and he and I kind of gelled a lot, um, maybe he could see a lot of himself and me and where I was headed and was trying to, curtail that a little bit um yeah it, it was it was a real interesting journey and um yeah i miss it a lot <laughs> you know especially at the moment like i've got a saying when it rains i train so when it's raining i'm training um so uh up here in brisbane we've got um carlos collar um whose brother mm. lindor for was a black belt in new zealand I met him at a, I met him at my first nationals, and um, ironically, we met at the urinal. <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, I'm Lindor Fakala. How you doing?" I was running around doing flying arm bars on everybody because I saw it in a movie, in a kung fu movie the night before. And he's like, "Where do you train?" It's, it's serious, true. Yeah. I'd never done one in my life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was running around. He's like, "Who are you? What do you do?" He goes, oh, I'm Lindor for Kyle. I'm a Hicks and Gracie Baker. I'm like, oh, yeah, no big deal. I'll get one of those two one day. See you later. Mm. You know? And I kind of just wrote the whole thing off. I thought Jiu-Jitsu black belts were just normal. You know, I'll get one. You know, yeah. Hicks and the dude. You know? I, I think well, they, are, they actually respect and I think they're attracted to people that don't treat them like that, that like aren't like fanboys of them sort of like, thing. Like any sort of musician or superstar or anybody – that's high up in their field, you know, like they want a sense of normality. They want to be around people that just treat them normally. And, you know, I wasn't disrespectful. I don't think I was, um, but yeah, just treating them as like normal human beings who just love what they do and are, are good at it. Hmm. Um, so did you so meet Helio? Did you meet yeah, Helio? Yeah. 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 So yeah of course. So tell us about Greg, that. Greg is like his kid, right? So, as soon as I got, as soon as I was living with Breno, and Breno kind of, it was real funny because the way I was brought up is like it's rude to ask, right? Yeah, and so I'd stayed with Breno for a couple of years, and he's like, "Ah, you're not passionate about your jujitsu. You don't care. You're living with a fourth degree black belt. You don't ask me nothing." And I'm like, "I was waiting for you to offer." Because it's rude to ask, right? That's the way I was brought up. He thought I wasn't into jujitsu seriously because I wasn't asking him anything. Mm. And he was really offended. And then we found out it. But anyway, so when I was staying with uh, Bruno, um, 
he would talk about Healy all the time, like he's like kind of like his uncle or grandfather or something, because he was really young when he met him. And they had a really good relationship from what I understand. It was very, very close to Hoyler. Hoyler's super close to Helio, you know, because he's like mm-hmm. the little guy in the family, you know, and Helio is kind of like a little guy. So they kind of have this like little guy jiu-jitsu thing going on. Um, and um, anybody over 80 kilos, forget about it, doesn't want to know about them. Like in the academy in Rio, he would split the room into like he had two rooms. Have you been to Gracie Humaita? Yeah. Yeah, so there's yeah. two rooms, right? So one room would be like where Hoyler was, where all the, all the guys mm. under 80 kilos and the, the big, heavy, tough guys that can't do jiu-jitsu like, go into the other room, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he always put me out there in the other room. I'm like, I'm 79 kilos. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, the first year that I that I was over there, which was 2003, um, uh, Hoyler decided to, to get a bus and take all the guys from gracing my tie out to meet Helio. So it became like an annual thing is that every year we'd go out and hang out. And then when when Bruno, because uh, Helio wouldn't speak Portuguese, so Bruno, I was hanging out and I was giving Helio a hard time, like just joking, right? Mm. Like, And so Bruno was kind of translating for me, you know, because I was standing in one of Helio's rooms all his trophies and that were, and, and Helio comes in with Bruno. And so I've got the translator there and, um, and he was like, uh, where are you from and all the rest. And, and we, I don't know, like he's a bit of a different dude. You've probably heard a lot about Helio, you know, most of it's pretty good. Some of it's a little bit, a little bit odd, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Like we were out there one day and you're fine. Just like, I mean, you don't need to be quiet. It's fine. And so, um, Helio was there and we had a bunch of guys. It was pre-world champs or like a month out from the Worlds or something. And um, so Helio was talking about, you know, like patience and jiu-jitsu and all these sorts of things and concepts. And, you know, he got, I can't remember who it was that he got, some like multiple-time multiple world champion, you know, and, um, you know, just told the guy to try and choke him. I think he put him in the mount or something. Go, ah, come on, show me. And the guy couldn't do anything, right? Or was he escaping the mount? It's one of the two things, right? And yeah. and the guy couldn't do anything to Helio. And then they reversed positions, and Helio like just played with the guy. It was it was quite an amazing thing to to see. And and every single year he would do a similar thing. And you've seen Pedro do amazing jiu-jitsu as well, and do demonstrations of. Of, of leverage and 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 stuff mm. like that it's and you know like a lot of people real who, who are not it sounds bad but like if you if you don't from that lineage or whatever you just don't see that kind of jujitsu you know mm. and for the most part it's like put a hand on the collar pull on the hand or put two hands on the collar and squeeze and that's a choke but the and you're seeing you you saw that you were very lucky you met Pedro pretty early on. Mm. First coach, pretty much, other than Phil. Uh, well, well, Phil pretty much took right. me to Nexus under Murat. Yeah. But yeah, I was under Pedro. Yeah. Then Pedro came yeah. down, got yeah. my blue so, belt from. So him. you would start to see like like Murat super technical through Pedro. Mm. So you start. So your first experience was like amazing, right? Mm. Like it was normal then. But if you'd gone to like 
XYZ Jiu-Jitsu, I won't name names, um, then you wouldn't have got that at all. And when mm. you did see it, it seemed like some sort of magic, you mm. know. Um, so, well, if, yeah. I, uh, if I didn't get my blue belt from Pedro, I don't know if I'd still be doing it. And like with, without his sort of inspiration kind of thing. Yeah, Pedro, and, like wanting to, and wanting to sort of come back. Look, so I was sort of injured after that with my injuries and, and all that. And I was like off for like a year, but then Pedro came back again. And I'm like, oh, I've got to go back for Pedro. And so, yeah, that's what I sort of started back. I was just mainly doing stuff, arm in the belt. You know. Yeah. But yeah, and then, then the technique and everything just evolving over the years. I'm just like, so there's so much depth. And it's like, you know, and then you go back and watch a video from five years ago, and it's like still so much um, awesome stuff in there, technique-wise. And like but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, and it's more than just technique; it's the feel and everything. It's kind of like a whole different perspective of jujitsu that they have. And, and and also for you, like every time I've been injured, whether I've broken a leg or smashed a shoulder or elbow or something, like, but you're permanently in the situation where you're having to learn to use the rest of your body to compensate, right? Like you have, mm. you can't be inefficient because you've only got three limbs. Yeah, that's right? it. Three and a half maybe, right? So, yeah. so you can't cheat and use strength because most strength is done with symmetry, right? Mm. Like trying to, push a, trying to push a barbell versus trying to use dumbbells or sitting on a Swiss ball. So like that's why, you know, you get a lot of respect from a lot of people because they know what you're having to do on a permanent basis. Mm. And Pedro would have seen it. Like the struggle that you're having to go through, like is very unique and you get a lot of respect for it. Yeah, well, I'll just, I'll just, 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 I'll just keep going and then it's like all of a sudden. See, wow. see, and like, it's just like up. But you can say yes, like you do have a unique struggle that you're going through mm. and no problem. Um, and people are inspired by you, you know. It's, you know, probably one of the, I don't know, one of the main reasons why you do the podcast, but it's, you know, like everybody who does jiu-jitsu probably wonders, like, what would happen if something like that happened to me? Mm. You know? Like, could I continue? Would I continue? How would my jiu-jitsu change? You know, and I've been through similar things, busting my neck, busting my back you know, learning to walk again, crawling and stuff like that mm. for years. Um, and, but like, I'm able to, I'm very luckily I've been able to recover from that and my body's pretty good. But like you have a, a permanent thing, it sounds like, right? Mm. That's, that's yeah. not going to get any better. So. Much. Yeah. yeah. Also, we're talking about that touch on like you, like um, when you, you came, you were training with us for a little while um, before you went to Queensland, you had, um, your back issues, I think yeah. uh, you might have. I think you've mostly resolved it uh, in terms of pain. Uh, you talk about oh, that, yeah, what, yeah. what modalities you've learned and all that sort of stuff. Oh, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff. So what happened was the week before um, I got my black belt, which is so we're going back to like 2000 and I think it's like seven or something. I should know this. I think December 15th, 2007. So the week before, of course, you're still there? Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. So, so as always, like the, the worst thing you can do is decide to have a light grapple before you go to a competition or something, right? 
Mm. We'll just go like one last one, right? And so me and a, a, a another brown belt guy that I like a lot, we're just having a light roll. Um, obviously, it had been a, a long 10 years leading up to it. There's a lot going through your mind. It's a, it's a very, very, you'll see, you, you would have seen it lots, seen the guys leading up to the black belt. They start to go through the self-doubt. There's a, it's a huge, huge thing. You'll only ever kind of do it once. So I'm having this light roll with the sky and, you know, we're sweating quite a bit because it was, it was summer. And I went to switch out from underneath an all fours position and um, he went to scamper around behind me and he slipped in some sweat. So I was posted on my arm or my elbow from my switch out from underneath all fours and he slipped and fell on me. So his whole body weight landed on my head sideways. So there's nowhere for me to go because I'm locked to the floor. Yeah. Right. And my head can't go anywhere. And it just sounded like a whole bunch of salary snapping. Snap. Because it was only us in the academy, just two of us, no music, nothing. So it was real loud. And we both just stopped and looked at each other and I rubbed my neck and I'm like, holy crap. Like, I can't believe like I'm, like, I just thought I broke my neck. Something went really wrong, but there was no pain or anything. Zero. I'm like, oh, shit. Got away scot-free with something. Went to Sydney on this, I went on this whole big drive, this like thing, got my black belt, came back, opened my big new academy, right? And everything was going great. Amazing, right? It's a giant academy. We've got aircon, million students. Everything's great. Got my black belt. Life's amazing. So it's about maybe a month later after all of that. And um, I've been out mountain biking. And I was sitting in my van driving through Ringwood. And I'm sitting in traffic, as you do in Ringwood on the main street. And then I took, my, my first thought was that I'd been rear-ended by another car. Because I just got the searing pain from my neck to my, down to my tail and my spine. And I lost my vision. Right, so I, I fell into the front of my, my van. I crawl out. I, I thought I, I had this thing in my head that the car was going to explode because you see it in movies, right? Mm. So I crawl out of that. I crawl across between the parked cars onto the footpath, and I try and stand up. And my legs are like this, like jelly. And I fall down, and I try and get up, and it's like I'm on roller skates or something. And I, I couldn't. I couldn't walk. The great irony is that I was right in front of a chiropractor, a chiropractor's office, and I crawled in and crawled up to reception and I, I was in shock. And they put me in traction. Like they put this, this leather, th I never forget, it was terrifying. They put this leather helmet thing around my head and strapped me to this board like a waterboard and stretched me out. And that's the last thing I remember. I can't remember how I got home. I don't remember most of the next week. The next thing I remember after that is being in the um, in my sports doctor's office, and he's like, "It's over." He goes, "It's all over," you know. Um, he goes, "If you get a bump on the chin in the wrong way, you're going to be a quadriplegic." So I I prolapsed three discs in my neck, maybe herniated one of them. Um, it was pretty severe, and. 
I just opened this giant new academy. I had affiliate academies and stuff by that stage. And I'm like, me being me, I'm like, I just don't quit. I don't stop. You know, so I've got a saying, persistence overcomes resistance. Yeah. And so I've I've had that my whole life. Um, I used to read, read ninja books when I was a kid. And, and uh, apparently the ninja saying means keep going. And I just had this whole thing in my head that I was a ninja and stuff when I was a kid. And so I just had this thing and then my dad's military stuff, like you just don't give up. You go until you're dead. So I'm like, well, I couldn't, like, I couldn't hold me. If I was lying on the ground, I couldn't lift my head off the floor. Like it was that bad. So for three years after that, I just taught guard stuff because I couldn't, I couldn't have really afford to get on top. So I would hold my head and lie on the floor, place my head on the floor and go, all right, let's go. So I don't know if we've, we've been on the mat together, but if ever you paid any attention, you'll notice no one ever gets to grab my head because I'm really super good at deflecting everything. You can't grab my head anytime. So like literally if anybody grabbed my head, I thought I was going to die or get, become a quadriplegic. So that's what I mean where you get an injury and it leads you down a whole path you never would have experienced otherwise. And you get super good in these defensive areas usually. And you're, hy- you're um, hypersensitive towards that region and protecting it. Well, you have to be. Like, what's mm. the key ingredient in jiu-jitsu? Be early, right? Mm. Well, when you're looking at being a quadriplegic, you're going to be real fucking early, right? Mm. <laughs> Use my language. You're going to be yeah. really on point and you're just watching anything that's going to come near your head. And so it's very hard to cross-face my head. And I, mm. I developed this weird kind of jiu-jitsu as a result. And... I, obviously, I, I stopped competing and and it influenced my jiu-jitsu a lot. And it wasn't long after that that I met Pedro. So Murat sent me a, a, a poster and I didn't even know who Pedro Sal was. Murat sent me a poster. I saw the guy's picture with like a million stripes on his mm. belt and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? He's not a Gracie. Like he's wearing a Gracie thing. I, I, don't, know, I don't know who he is. So I went to the seminar and Pedro and I gelled immediately um, because he was showing black belt moves and then he was showing other grade moves and I didn't even go hang with the black belts. Like I just went straight and hung out with all the white belts and helped them with their stuff. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm helping them with the thing. And he goes, why aren't you over there with all the black belts doing the black belt thing? And I go, well, I've kind of already got it. And he goes, have you practiced it? I'm like, no, I saw you do it. Because I'm hyper-visual, right? Mm-hmm. Visual connection. So if I can see it, pretty much I can do it. So um, he's like, show me then. So I showed him and he's like, oh, okay, what's your name again? So we, there, was this, there was this like, I'm interested in helping people. Like I'm a coach, like that's my drive. I'm not out for myself kind of thing. And I think he kind of saw that. Um, we got chatting, obviously, he knows Hoyler very, very well. So I had the Hoyler connection. And um, I could tell by the way he was walking, there was something going on with his back. Um, and so because of my background in sports science, we got talking about stuff. I helped him out a bit. And then he's like, um, you should come and see me sometime. We should hang out some more. Yeah. And I'm like, well, where, where, where do you live? And he goes, DC. I'm like, oh, cool. I go, when are you ne- there next? And he goes, like, three weeks' time. I'm like, okay, I'll see you then. And he was staying with Phil. I heard the founders out later. So he goes home, 
And he asks Phil, he goes, hey, do you know this like Rob guy? And Phil's like, yeah, he was my first jiu-jitsu coach. And he goes like, oh, he taught you. He's like, yeah. And hmm. for, and and like Alki and all these other dudes. Oh, so you know I'm cool. He reckons he's coming to see me. And Phil's like, he's probably already there, man. Hmm. <laughs> and so when because Phil knows me, right? He yeah. knows what I'm like. I just turn up. I just yeah. go, right, that's what I'm doing. Let's go. And so when when Pedro uh, walked into the academy in DC a few weeks later, I'd already been in the academy the whole day, you know, like since it opened in the morning. And um, so, yeah, like Pedro's a really special guy. Um, and, again, he's very, very super good friends with Halson. So when he and I got talking over pizza and stuff about the whole Halson thing and what I'd been through, the transformation that, that I'd been through, um, what had happened with my neck and how it's starting to change me as a person, then then Pedro and I kind of became really close um, and I wanted to become a, a Pedro affiliate, but there was a whole lot of stuff in the way. So I'm like, I don't care, man. Like, you know, like I don't have like a coach. Yeah. Like, you know, Hoyler, I'll be forever grateful for, for everything he's taught me. Great relationship with him. Same with Bruno Pano. Same with Halson. Same with Pedro. To me, they're all one. They're all friends. They're all, everyone gets along. It's just jujitsu and we're all the same kind of family. And 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 I, I kind of hate, this is my only coach. Like, for me, it, that doesn't really work. Um, and so Pedro and I became very, very good friends. Um, and he started to alter my jujitsu because I was still kind of this, had this thuggish kind of jujitsu going on. And um, because of what had happened with my neck, I couldn't run, I couldn't lift weights. There was a lot of stuff that I'd had to dump. And, um, you know, and of course I'd, I'd given up competing and all that. Then some other Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts set up academies near my academy, um, Carlos Vieira being one of them. So there was a lot of uh, competing black belts, guys who were black belts who currently competed, and I had a very strong competition team. So there was a lot of pressure from my, my, my team for me to represent them. They wanted to have an, a coach who they could support like the other teams could support their coaches. Kind of stupid because you wouldn't expect, like I always bring up the whole Mike Tyson Customato thing, right? Like Customato wasn't out there representing Tyson. Right, he's a coach. Coaches coach and fighters fight. So, but I was silly enough to 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 kind of wilt to the pressure and decided to compete. And I hadn't competed in years. Everybody kind of knew my story. Um, went out in my gear, my weight division, won my first fight in like thirty seconds. Movie star stuff. Everyone cheered because everyone knew what had been through. Um, and that was all great. I went home. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then uh, Pete DeBean rings me that night. And he's like, hey, nobody will fight Big Mick. You know, Mick, Mick Wilson He's like a 140 kilo black belt. No one will fight him in the no-gi. Will you fight him? And I'm like, well, sure. Why not? You know? So um, I'd fought Mick lots before. He's a nice guy. He's a big dude. He's not malicious in any way. Um, but during our match, I felt like a little click in my back, just a click, like clicking your, your knuckles or something. It was a nothing. 
paid no attention to it. Um, and then a few weeks later, I got a spasm. Oh, what was that? Some little sharp spike. That just started to continue and get worse and worse and, and more frequent. And then my, my sports doctor's like, right, go and get some physio done, go get, test your core strength, go do Pilates, go do yoga, go swimming, go do all this stuff. None of it worked, continue to get worse. And um, then he's like, all right, cortisone shot. That, that helped for like a year. So like, boom, I'm back again doing all my jiu-jitsu, going crazy, and everything was great. But when that wore off in about a year, then started going downhill pretty badly. And maybe a year after the quarter, or a year and a half after the cortisone shot, I literally rang him one morning and I'm like, dude, I can't walk. I can't even get out of bed. So an ambulance sent me down to the medical center, MRI, CT scans, the whole thing on my back. And they're like, man, we don't know what's going on. Um, so they went and cut a whole lot of nerves around my around the area to try and alleviate the pain. That made it worse. <laughs> so so now I'm on a worse state than I was before. So like, yeah, I spent the next two years like just crawling around the house. But I was on the mat every single day. I don't think I missed a day. So I had my I've always got my garage matted out. Um, at that point when I couldn't walk, I had to close the academy. So Ground Zero ended up closing. All the all the schools under Ground Zero ended up pretty much closing and I sent everybody over to Absolute. So <laughs> you got like 80 students in one day, he's very happy. Um, but um, yeah, I a few of my students would um, just come round. I'd crawl down the stairs, crawl through the house, push the garage door opener and just that same mentality, which is like, I'm just going to lie here. And like, I couldn't, if I was lying on the ground, I couldn't lift my feet off the ground. Like my legs were like dead. So I just lie there and go, okay, smash me. And, <laughs> and the guys would just pummel me from that position. And, and, and like, I was super happy just doing that. Like just to have that human contact, just. All right, guys, we had a bit of uh act of God there. Um, as Rob was talking, I had a catastrophic power, I had a power failure due to a tree taking out a power, power post and power lines in the core opposite us. Lucky no one was injured, but it was a pretty catastrophic, uh, failure. So that, um, that was fine. That was only, didn't have power for a few hours. But now we now our water's actually the whole water in the region's um, gone because of the electricity um, going out. Uh, so somehow our water got affected from that. So we're just waiting to hear back when we can get actual when the What's water's happened? sort of safe enough again. Hey, Victoria, it's COVID 19s killing you, and now power outages and sewage stuff and water treatments and yeah it's just like uh it seems all to be coming together like um it was just so close because in my it was like a while we were doing the last podcast i accidentally left the windows well the start of this podcast which was the other day um i left uh cracking the windows open but the wind was so ferocious 
like I kept looking around because like the wind was blowing so much inside. I thought the uh, lights and everything were gonna go, was going to go flying. So I was like, ah, shit, I should have turned the window off, uh, closed the window. But then the tree came down. So lucky today there was another tree next to it, a massive tall gum tree, and they cut that back today. So it's just massive, just dead post now. Um, yeah, so act of God. <laughs> uh, I was, yeah, so sorry about that. So so basically, yeah, we're just talking about the injuries and your back issues and um you know, having to crawl to the door and stuff like that and crawling to the mats and then playing just like in the guard and what was a guard or mount, a guard and yeah. telling people to yeah. come, come after me and all that. So um, if did you want to continue on that, that note or? Like the first, the first kind of major kind of thing that happened to me. And I mean, I, you know, it's, it's really funny because like, you don't want jiu-jitsu to sound like it's a bad thing, that it's riddled with injuries, but inevitably it is for the majority, for a lot of people. And the more time, like most people aren't going to suffer some catastrophic injury. Like they're going to train a couple of times a week for a few hours, you know, like they'll get some sore fingers or something, right? But like me being the obsessive compulsive kind of that I am, it was like, Literally day one, I came in and challenged the guys in the academy and got beat up really nicely. The next morning I turned up before the doors open and I'm there until the doors close. And it's been, it was like that for 20 years, you know? So it was like eight hours a day, all day, every day. And that's the way I like to approach things. It's kind of a sink or swim kind of thing. So like I, I mentioned that it was funny that at my first national championships, um, the night before we were watching like Kung Fu movies and there was this guy doing flying armbar things, right? This Kung yeah. Fu movie. So the next day I'm walking out onto the mat to grip up with this like guy in my first match. And I don't know why, but my brain went, Hey, do that thing you saw in the movie last night. So I did it and it worked. It was a flying armbar, right? And I tapped the guy in like 10 seconds and everybody went mad and I freaked out. And I'm like, hey, that's a cool thing. Like that that ends fights really quickly. I'll just keep doing that. And it just kept going and going and going and it kept working. And then on like the Monday when I went back to the academy, somebody said, hey, look, show us that move. And it's not something I'd ever practiced. So I just saw it literally in a Kung Fu movie and tried it and it worked. And so I tried it before class and I landed on my head. Like I didn't know this. This is just what I was told because I came to standing in front of the mirror in the changing room. And I, I'm standing there like looking at myself, holding onto, this, onto the sink in a gi wondering what the hell is going on. Like, what is this thing and what am I wearing and where am I? And a guy who was my best friend came into the, the changing room and asked if I was okay. And I'm like, I kind of know you, don't I? They called my girlfriend, who, of course, I had no idea who she was. She picked me up, took me to the hospital. And 
the doctor's to- like, total amnesia. Yeah, like I, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know why I was wearing a gi. I didn't know the people around me, absolutely zero. And the doctor goes, like, you, like I'm sitting there in my jiu-jitsu gi in the doctor's office. And he's because, like, after you concussed, you feel kind of drunk. And he's like, I was kind of laughing with everybody at reception and the in the hospital and stuff because I'm in a I'm in a martial arts gi. People are there with broken limbs or whatever. I thought it was kind of funny everything going on, but then he's like, "Oh, like apparently you do martial arts and you've hurt yourself doing that. Do you remember anything? No." And he goes, "Are you any good at it?" And I went, "Well, apparently I'm the national champion." He goes, "But do you remember how to do it?" And I'm like, "I've got no idea." Like, I don't even know why I'm wearing this silly outfit. So he said to my girlfriend, like, you know, like he's not allowed to sleep because if I, if I went to sleep, I could slip into a coma. And it was pretty serious. Um, and it was literally the next weekend, there was going to be a championship in our academy. And the whole week, my coach was telling me to fight in it. And I'm like, look, I don't know how to do this. Like, I literally had no idea. I'd, I'd brought back a, a, a video cassette of me fighting in the weekend that I had at home that my girlfriend put in the, like, there's a VCR thing. And I'm like, I, I couldn't believe that it was me even doing that stuff I had. But then again, I didn't know the city I was in and I didn't know anything. And... um. It was really funny because a few of the guys apparently that I'd beaten in the Nationals the week prior had come down to my academy to, like, get revenge and my coach convinced me to fight. But I had no idea. It's like it's like just grabbing some random guy off the street and putting a belt on him and go, go fight <laughs> in a jiu-jitsu tournament. And I didn't know. I, I just remember being terrified. Yeah? And... And, and the guy like grabbed my leg, threw me on the ground and grabbed my leg and, and it hurt a lot what he was doing. So I just screamed and they said like just tap the mat. So I don't even know if I tapped the mat. I think I just screamed loudly mm. and the guy stopped. And they were jumping around and cheering and stuff like this because like they'd beaten this guy. Apparently like I'd won all my matches at the Nationals really easily apparently. And they, so these guys had come to seek revenge. And it was years later, like 10 years later or more, that I ran into that guy and we had a chat at a tournament. And he had no idea what had happened to me. And he's mm. like, oh, now I feel really bad. Like I thought I'd got revenge, but you didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, couldn't, I didn't even know how to do my belt up, you know. And it was, it was really, it was quite terrifying because like I knew nothing. You know, I've been a professional athlete for most of my life and, been doing jiu-jitsu incredibly seriously and and I read through like I've got a diary I still have a diary I write in every day and I always have like since I was like maybe 13 or 12 or something and so all I did was read back through that to kind of find out about who I was and what I did and but I was too scared to leave the house because I tried leaving the house and I got lost a lot so I just stayed at home and and like drank beer and played video games and I didn't even like video games and I didn't like beer. But <laughs> like, I'm quite serious, right? And my girlfriend was like, you don't like beer. Why are you drinking beer? 
And I'm like, I just want beer. She's like, you don't even like video games. You're like this athlete guy. And I'm like, don't know. Like, I just want to play video games and stay inside, you know. And I actually, I remember that first night going home and taking off my gear because I was like 95, 96 kilos, like 5% body fat. And I took off my, my jacket when I got home in front of this mirror. And I was like, holy cow, look at me. Like, I was like, look like a superhero. I'm like, whoa, get that. Right. I probably didn't think I had to work for it. Right. Cause it was already just there. And it was, you know, the whole thing was really crazy. And, and so my partner took me around and introduced me to my friends and I read through my diary, but um, I did, I was too scared to do jujitsu because of that first experience, you know, like going out of the tournament, getting flogged and feeling embarrassed and, and but like I read through my diary and I really didn't do anything else. Like all I did was run up this big hill behind the house and go mountain biking and lift weights and do jujitsu. And that's kind of all that I that was in my diary. So I would go to the academy and kind of sit there and just like watch class and make excuses about headaches. But the reality was like I was like this guy that I wasn't anymore. Like I didn't know any of the stuff. I had no idea, but people had this, I guess, kind of expectation around me and I felt that expectation. So, but eventually I got on the mat and kind of, it was interesting because feelings that I had about quitting and stuff like that, when I felt like I'd just leave it behind, there were these weird feelings that would come up that would drive me forwards that are obviously part of my makeup, but that I wasn't aware of. And so I got back on the mat and started learning things and, and yeah, like it was, it, it was really, it was really quite, quite bizarre. And people often ask me like, what do you think you've forgotten? I'm like, well, I can't remember what I've forgotten because I forgot it. Right. I don't know. Like I don't know what's real between what I've read in my diary and what people have told me and what has actually happened because some things like, from my early childhood and stuff like that have come back. But I still doubt some of those images that I'm kind of retelling because I don't know if it's just what mum's told me or whether it actually happened. So that was pretty scary. And um, I just kind of wrote it off as a bit of a fluke. But I guess now with social media being what it is, there's more of these things being documented, people landing on their head and breaking their mm -hmm. backs. And when I, when I damaged my back, um, then it was really funny because when I, when I kind of mentioned it, then I started to realise and when I did more research, I found out it was relatively common for people to damage necks and backs and stuff like that in jiu-jitsu. It was quite, quite common because we're really trying to, like, hurt the other person. You know, not in nice academies, but it's kind of like playing rugby, right? The goal is... Mm just get the ball across the other side of the line, but there's catastrophic injuries that are really common, but that's not the goal. It's the same in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. You know, you know, like we're trying to practice breaking someone's arm and breaking their neck and breaking their legs, but you just tap to prevent that, you know? So, yeah. of course, on that journey to establishing those things, then things will happen. So, um yeah, I've had, even before then, like I've had a life of excessive exercise and excessive sport and 
with that comes a lot of injuries. Um, yeah, I can understand that. So like that, that's why when I eventually when I met Pedro and could start to understand because again I said that my like my goal was to go to the UFC, you know. So like the UFC is like let's just break this other person. Like mm. there's almost no rules. And when I was looking at it, there were basically no rules. You couldn't eye gouge your bite, and you weren't allowed to groin strike, and that was it. So. I'm like, okay, well, I can do anything I want to, like, try and kill this person without killing them, and I'm going to be pretty much okay. And that was that was kind of what I liked about jiu-jitsu because with my dad's upbringing, with his military mentality, you know, just smash everybody, and then going to these different martial arts where there were rules, then I was constantly asked to leave the the, the academy or dojo or whatever it was because I was getting fed two things. I'd go home and dad would say, just go to go to class and like try and kill everybody. And then I would do that wanting to appease my father. And then I'd get in trouble and then I'd get asked to leave. And then mum would get a phone call saying, hey, he's not welcome back. And then she's like, well, what else do you want to do? I'm like, oh, well, I'll go do this other thing, right? And then the same thing would happen again. So when I met Pedro and when I met Halson, then it, it kind of changed my mentality a lot that the goal wasn't to like hurt people, it was in fact the opposite. It was like, let's see how technical and precise we can make this art and whilst avoiding hurting the other person, you know. And so it was, it was incredible for me to get that and to start to, to learn Pedro's style of doing jiu-jitsu and to, to, to kind of start unraveling the onion, as it were, right? I use the onion analogy yeah. a lot. And, yeah. and when you start unraveling it and going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and breaking things down and you're grinning because you understand exactly what I'm talking yeah. about, is that you start to reach a level of understanding that, I don't know, it's, it's almost so deep that, like, I would even forget that there's somebody in front of me. I'm really just trying to solve problems and deal with things on such a subtle level that it doesn't even feel like a fight anymore, you know. And I remember a weird instance where I was working on the door doing security and there was like a mass brawl, maybe 20, 25 guys all smashing each other. I was kind of in the middle of it all. And... Some guy grabbed, I think some guy grabbed me around the head from behind and I immediately stepped behind him and grabbed the backs of his legs. Yeah. Like it was pure yeah. instinct. Yeah. Muscle memory. Yeah. Because you've drilled that so many times. And like I just poured, like when we're <coughs> practicing, we have distinctive pauses through the technique step by step. And those, a lot of people think that we, we, we shouldn't have those, but like they're kind of reassessment points, right? Mm. Get to that point, we can reassess. Am I going to go left, right? Am I going to continue with this technique? Am I going to change and do another one? And I got to that point really quickly, like grab the back of this guy's legs. And the next step literally would, for me to be, have lifted him up and kind of DDT'd him onto his head behind me. But he sensed that, right? And he just goes, don't. <laughs> right? like that. I just remember him screaming, don't, 
And I was just like, and he let go of my head, and I can't remember what the, the rest that happened, but that was kind of one of the, the times when, you know, like jiu-jitsu kind of, pure jiu-jitsu kind of reared its head in the middle of some chaos that I was involved in. And, and that was when you were, so was that like after your amnesia? Because, like, I yeah. actually wanted to talk about the muscle memory, like, oh, well, I mean, like yeah, you went back to jiu-jitsu, you didn't know anything, but then you I just... Nothing, zero, nothing, nothing, like, but at then, all. Well, no, that... I, just I just practiced like everybody else. But what I think, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure what I was like before, but because I had nowhere else to go, I'd literally just sit at home all day and drink beer and play video games. And then eventually I got bored and, and my girlfriend and her mum just said to me, look, you're going to have to get out of the house and do something. But I was literally too scared to go anywhere. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I, like just nothing, like zero. It's a blank slate and it's terrifying. And so the safe place for you is like just where you are, like in your room, in the house. Don't go anywhere. Um, yeah. I actually want to touch on that as well in a sec. Yeah, yeah. Back to yeah, the um, playing games sort of thing. Well, it was only one game really. Like I just played Doom because, like, I I don't know why. I just I felt this desire to play video games, and I never had. I mean, I played Space Invaders and stuff when I was a kid, but like, I'm talking when I'm what 27 years old. All of a sudden, like, I just go, I want a case of beer and I want to buy a video game. So do you think like, that was like needed? That was like a rest period you needed? I have no idea. Like literally this is this is literally within a couple of days after it happened. Mm. You know, like the very night that I went home and he said, because I was living with my, my, my girlfriend and her mum and uh, she, the girlfriend drove me home from the hospital, get home and I go to say hi to her mum and her mum kind of just wanders off. And I'm like, oh, she goes, oh, you and mum don't get along. And I'm like, oh, she seems kind of nice. Like, like I didn't know anything, right? Nothing. And, and so then I'm like, I want to drink some beer. And she's like, hey, look, I don't think that's a good idea. The doctor said, you know, and I'm like, look, that's what I want. Let's just go do that. And, and, and then so I convinced her to get me like a big case of beer. And she goes, you don't even drink beer. You don't like beer. Like, you like bourbon. And it's still true, but like for that period, I just wanted to drink beer and play video games. And and then I just got, I guess it was a push from her and her mom saying, look, get out of the house, go do something. And I was getting bored. So I go, what do I do? And she's like, well, you run up the hill behind the house all the time. You always go to the gym and, you know, you must have written your diaries, all this crap that you do. And I'm like, yeah, but, and then I tried running up this big hill behind the house and I'm like, that's really hard. Like. I probably don't want to do that much. You know, like, like Especially if you forget how to run properly. Well, it wasn't even that. It was just a desire. Like there was no desire like to do any of this stuff. And so out of boredom, I would start going to the jiu-jitsu academy at night and just watching, you know. Like I, I was bored and I wanted to join a class or I wanted to try it, but there was a part of me that was too scared to because of the expectations that others had on me. I just won the nationals the week before, like, and now I don't know what's going on, you know? And, 
you know, the, the probably this is kind of odd to mention, but like the, this is this is how weird it was. I was sitting there at the academy one night, and this quite attractive girl sat beside me, and she's like, "Why is she here?" And I'm like, "What are you talking about? Who are you?" She goes, "I'm the girl that you're cheating on your girlfriend with." <laughs> right, and I'm like, "I don't know who you are. Like, I don't know what's. I don't know anything." And she's like. Yeah, sure. And I'm like, no, like, I don't know who you are, right? <laughs> like, I had no idea of, like, my life at all. Did and your accent change? <laughs> well, I was just like, then, but not, like, literally I in my head I'd only known my girlfriend for two or three days, so I'm mm. like, wait up. This yeah. feels pretty cute. Like, I could swap girlfriends and, like, <laughs> but obviously I was, I was cheating on her and I didn't even know about it, right? Mm. Like, and I'm like, oh, anyway. Um, but weird things like that would come up, you know, like like you like bourbon, you don't like beer, you don't play video games, and now you do. And 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 it was just really, really odd. But eventually I started, I, I would just watch what was going on on the mat. And I don't know if that's part of how I became so visual, visual kinetic with the whole jiu-jitsu thing is that, my like I don't remember what it was like before, but I remember having to sit there and just intensely watching what was going on and trying to pick it up and trying to figure out what was going on so that eventually when I did get back onto the mat, then that was kind of like how I learned. I learned by watching. And so um yeah, that that kind of became a staple of like my thing. Like I don't really need to do it. If I can see it, if I can watch it, then I can understand the mechanics and I can see the steps in it. So then if I go to do it, like I, I can't, I could probably call it, recall it if I really thought about it. But I remember being in a tournament years later, like and I'm talking mid-2000s, and there was a martial arts magazine called Blitz, here. Yeah. And I remember they had picture by step by step pictures of sequences. And I remember being on the mat mid tournament and just pulling up a step by step sequence from Blitz and doing it. And it worked. You know, and I went, oh, that's weird. Like that just, that thing just happened, you know, where I can see things and then pick them up and just do them. But whoever it was in Blitz, thank you very much. It was great. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was it was just it was just odd, and then I kind of got into it, and then the nationals rolled around the next year. Yeah, and I'm like, right, I'm going to go and do this thing, and I had pretty much the same results. Flogged everybody, did really well, and I'm like, okay, so I'm not comfortable being at the top of the mountain here. You know, like, I want to do more. I want to get better. What's above me? I like climbing. The USC had been something I was really interested in. And so I'm like, right, like, let's go do this thing. And um, then John Willard come over, as I explained, and came to Melbourne and the whole the whole running an academy and setting up jiu-jitsu academies and affiliates and all that sort of stuff just it wasn't a part of my plan but it was the best thing for me as a person because if I'd gone down the whole MMA route pretty seriously then 
yeah, it wouldn't have been good for me, you know. Like I was concussions as well. I wouldn't have been concerned about that. I was just like, no, but like um, the effect would have. You would have been different now. You would have been like slower. (laughs) Yeah, slurring you. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I don't know. Like literally, I never, I never really thought about the. I mean, I changed the way that I did flying arm bars for sure, like because then I eventually learned about what they were like. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I probably shouldn't like jump up that high and do all this stuff. Um, and, I, and I found a new way to kind of enter into them. I'd put my hand on the floor and like post and jump into them. Mm. Um, but then I broke a couple of guys' knees doing that, so that probably wasn't good either. Um, but sorry, Larry Papadopoulos. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It was—it's it's just the whole thing's been a, a really bizarre journey through jiu-jitsu. And um, yeah, injuries are part of it. Um, I mean, injuries are a part of any sport. And like the the yeah, I I I, I miss jiu-jitsu terribly, uh, you know, and. Uh, I, I wouldn't want, I, I mean, since moving to the Gold Coast, I had a couple of small, like, little coaching things I was doing up here for small clubs and stuff like that. I've always got mats in my garage, and um, I became good friends with Carlos Collar up here, and who's, yep. who's in Brisbane, about 45 minutes north of me. So... He's uh, a ba- base. He's, he's, yeah, base jiu-jitsu. Yeah. yeah. I think it was head on. Yep, there oh, we go. Yeah. There we go. Always oh, throwing his hat. Yep. And, uh, no, he's a good, he's a good man. I like Friends him a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like, again, again um, meeting, meeting Carlos was, again, it's always these like fighter guys, right? And we're all very similar that when we, not only when, when the majority of guys meet each other, that there's a little bit of bravado and there's a little bit of like, there's some barriers there. Um, but as a, as, a, as a black belt, when you walk into a, a, a new academy, with my injury history, stuff like that, it's always really scary for me because I'm like, I don't know what I'm walking into. Um, hmm. and like when, I, when I was recovering from, from my neck injury, for example, the great irony was I was wondering about who I could trust with my neck. Yep. And... Um, there yeah yeah keep talking yeah and so i was like you know how, how do i test my neck without putting it at risk uh and yet there was a guy adam who who was like my greatest competitor he was from sydney then he lived in thailand i ended up flying over to him in thailand to train with him just because for some reason i could trust the guy it was really strange so anyway good friends with Carlos went into the academy and you know we spoke about a history where do you come from who do you know all the rest you know and then it's not so much the coach that's always the problem it's always the high grades the big burly purple belts and brown belts and and you're grinning because you know what I'm talking about right yes like they're the the enforcers of the academy and like they just see the belt and a gi they don't they you like looking at me Physically, I look like I'm really fit, you know, and, and I'm pretty fit, but you can't see what's underneath the skin. You can't see bone damage and, and all the stuff. I don't walk with some giant limp or anything else, right? So 
it's not a it's not a, an injury you can see. Um, there's no limitations in the way that you would, you know, Murat and a couple of guys have picked up like that I move a little bit weird on the mat. Mm. Um, but for the most part, I've done really well to hide it, not deliberately, just I'm, I work around what I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that's always scary for me. But, and the yeah, the, the first session at, at Carlos's gym was like being in a washing machine just with these really super strong purple and brown belts mm. like, and me just going into like survival mode and not get hurt and stuff. But it was just awesome. And and after a while then he and I learned about each other and developed a really cool relationship. And, of course, he's super good friends with um, Pedro. Mm. Uh, so when Pedro was over here, I was traveling around with him a little bit. And no, it's just it's, it's a part of my life that uh, at the moment with the whole COVID thing, has kind of been on hold. Usually I'd be on the mat every few weeks. And usually it's a period, like up here when it rains for like two weeks nonstop, then I'll be on the mats up there like almost every day. And then boom, I'm gone because the rain stopped and I'm out, you know, bike coaching and building trails and and it's like that. But uh, it's been really, di- really difficult. Um, I, think, I think probably the coolest thing is that, it's just inside me, yeah? Like, yeah. I could, like, pretty much not train for the next 10, 15 years or more, and if something happened, my, I know my body would just respond the right way, mm. you know? That, um, that's what you want to be comfortable with, the muscle memory, memory. from drilling so yeah. many times. Well, we had, a, we had a home invader a few years ago in Melbourne, um, a guy, like, bust through our front door unexpectedly. <laughs> And, you know, my partner had seen me train jiu-jitsu and things like this. But obviously at my age, not going out to nightclubs, getting in fights and all this sort of stuff. So when this dude came through the door and I kind of just took care of business, like it was all over in like 10, 15 seconds and the guy was asleep, but she saw me put the guy to sleep and she said, I, I saw his eyes as you were putting him to sleep and he thought he was going to die. You know, like hmm. he was terrified, right? But I just put him to sleep, lay him on the ground, called the police, everything, everything was fine. But, you know, that's really cool. You know, it's cool that you know inside yourself and I think that for the longest time, as a, a pretty insecure kid growing up, even though I'd done a lot of martial arts, like nothing had really kind of subverted that insecurity that I had until I found jiu-jitsu. And even mm. then when I first found it, I was still super angry and really aggressive. And, and you know, like what I went through with my back changed me as a person uh, completely. Um, uh, if you no doubt probably if you speak to Phil or Alki that have known me for a very long time, then I'm a very different. Like I used to go out running for like an hour or two before. I used to run around Melbourne knocking on my students' doors on like a Saturday morning with 10k between their doors, knocking on their doors, reminding them to go to class that morning. Now I'd do a two-hour run all circumventing Melbourne to wake all my students up to get them to class the next morning, you know, and for them to see me going from that to, like, 
crawling was really difficult, I'm sure, for a lot of them. Um, but just knowing that now that my body's okay, that I can look after myself, then that's a big thing. Because for, for a while there, for a couple of years there, like I couldn't. Mm. You know, we had a home invasion, another one, a couple of weeks after my first surgery, and there's nothing I could do. There was somebody mm. known to me, you know, and they threatened me and threatened the, the missus and stuff like this, and there's really nothing I could have done, and that scared the hell out of me. It was mm. the first time in my life I'd ever felt vulnerable, and it kind of changed my attitude towards gun laws. <laughs> because if that person decided to kill me, they could have done it. Yeah. And there's nothing I could do about it. And and I was like, wow, like this is what a lot of people feel like. Like this is what the majority of the public feel like. They feel vulnerable, you know. Whether they're 18 or 80, like they all have the, the right to be able to defend themselves and feel safe in their own house. And yeah. I'd never got it until then. I'd always felt like Superman and I'd... For the most part, I'd always been that way, but that day changed my life big time in terms of, you know, like how I felt. And then I started putting knives around the house and, you know, things like that. You know, I'm, I'm serious, you know, because I was absolutely terrified. Um, and, you know, like it took, it took years to get my body back to where I felt that if something happened, I could do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, can you go back to um, with the amnesia and actually reading your diary? Did you yeah. and sort of just I just want to sort of delve into a little bit if you got sort of any memories or anything tied to sort of like uh, identity, like not knowing yourself, but then reading and then being detached and almost being like an observer of your life. It's really like I was reading about somebody else. You know, it's like you picking up my diary tomorrow. Yeah. Mm. Right? And that's you now. You know, it, it, it really was, you know, and um, it's funny. Like, I'm getting all emotional about it now. Like, I haven't thought about it for a long time. And Yeah, it was very difficult. Mm. You know? um, yeah, it's like... like the night before, like I peeled off my top and I, like, I don't know, ninety-five kilo wrecking machine. Yeah, and and but but you don't know anything. Like you don't like like that night. My girlfriend had the videotape from the weekend because I used to take a, a, a camera to the tournaments and film myself, and she had that. Because when we got home after the hospital, I'm like, what is this jujitsu thing? Mm. And she goes, I'll show you what you do. And she put it in the VHR, like beside the bed. And I'm like, oh, I was watching myself from a few days before. Mm. And I'm like, that's, a, that's amazing. Like, that's incredible. Like, I, I, but I'm like, so I guess I you felt like Neo wow. in the Matrix. It's, but it, well, it, it kind of was. I was doing some weird, freaky stuff, but I was like, that's just, I don't know. It was just, I just remember being scared. Like, like I don't, I, 
I would leave. I had had a car and I could drive. So like the, the muscle memory of knowing how to drive was there. Like that was deep enough in my muscle memory that I could drive. But I would drive down the road and be lost. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't. And I'd lived in that city for 10, 12 years or more. Hmm. And then, then I'd get lonely and then I'm like, hey, there's this guy that keeps popping up in the diary all the time. She's like, oh, I'll take you around to his place. So then I met my best friend. Mm. And I go to shake his hand. Hey, how you doing? I'm Rob. <laughs> I know who you are, you dickhead. Like, what the hell's <laughs> going on? You know, and it's, it's really weird reading your diary because when you read your diary, you're creating images and like a video in your head but you don't know how accurate that is. And so you don't know what you can trust, but that's all you have. Like it's literally a clean slate. It's clean slate. Like, mm. like I told you, the first night, the night I went home, I went to say hi to her mum and her mum walked away from me. And then my girlfriend's like, oh, mum and you don't get along. And I was like, oh, she seems really nice. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I had no, no preconception of my head. As, and, and it was really, like, if I look back at the couple of years following that, it was really just all over the place, you know. I had, I had no real direction other than going to jiu-jitsu. Like, there was the, just this one thing that I did, you know. I'd, I'd get up and I'd do the stuff in my diary that I said that I always did and then I, it just kind of became a part of my life and then the people that were there became kind of my friends and, it just, I guess it was kind of like an anchor for me um, yeah. in a lot of ways. But there was, very difficult. There was just nothing else. Like I didn't, it's not like I was a mechanic and then I did jiu-jitsu part-time. Like all I did all day was jiu-jitsu and train for jiu-jitsu, mm. you know, and then I rode bikes a lot because I read about riding bikes and I had bikes and I could ride and do things like that. Um, but it was... Yeah, it was really scary. Just I, I, the the thing I remember the most was like that that week leading between when it happened and then the tournament, like the next weekend. And like I rang my coach, and I'm like, "Well, he rang he rang me, and he's like, how's how's your head gone, or what's going on?' Because remember, you're fighting next weekend." And I'm like, "Dude, like I don't know how to do jujitsu." Like the doctor, I don't know. Like I, and he just couldn't comprehend. And he's a doctor. He's a microbiologist, right? Mm. And I don't know, like, if he thought that I was faking it. Like, I don't know, like, what was going through his head. Like, why would you? He, was, I was in hospital and I didn't know where the hell I was. I didn't even know how to do my belt up. And you convinced me the next weekend. It was literally a week later. That I had to fight in a championship in our in, in our own academy, and I was like the top guy in the in, in the school. But I'm like, I don't know, I don't know jujitsu, you know. Like, but I did. I also because I'd said to him, no. But there was a part of me that's like, you've got to do this. Yeah, you've just got to do it, and I'm like. And I just remember walking onto the mat in this gi. It's like you're walking out onto Wimbledon and you've never played tennis in your life, you know? Mm. 
you know you're faking it. You've got your white outfit on your tennis racket, but you kind of know how the game goes, but, like, you don't know how to do anything. Mm. And I felt just like that, yeah? And then I don't know if you've ever heard the name Carl Weber from New Zealand. He's a kind of Valetudo guy. He's a jiu-jitsu black belt. It was him. Carl came out and whipped my butt in, like, 10 seconds, and I screamed like a little girl, and they all cheered, you know? And then 10 years later at a tournament, I'm sitting beside Carl and we're having a bit of a gas bag and he goes, dude, I went out and fought in a tournament at Box Hill and, and like, you know, flogged some guy and then I sit down beside Carl and he's like, man, I can't believe I beat you so easily all those years ago. And I'm like, oh, shit, no one's ever told you. And he's like, what? And I went, hey, I'll tell you what happened. And then he's like, oh, man, like, I've been really pumped up about that for like 10 years because, like, you were the guy to beat and then I came and beat you really easily and I went home with my chest all puffed out and then I find out, like, you didn't even know, like, who you were that week. (laughs) It was very funny. Sounds like a good story for uh, a metamorous. Oh. (laughs) You two have a rematch. Well, there's there's better rematches for me than that, like, Mm. yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so t- can you talk about like all the, the mountain bike, you know, you're building the trails, you're out raking the, you know, the countryside. Oh, well, yeah. It's, 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 I don't know. Life is, life is really bizarre. Right. So, um, uh, uh, yeah. Like when my back got really super bad and I couldn't walk, I ended up leaving my wife and, um, I was literally sleeping on a friend's floor, no jiu-jitsu academies, no income. I couldn't get the doll or anything because technically I was still the, 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 the director of a company. Homeless, I had like $500 in my wallet. That was, that was everything, you know, like I had not, I was freaking out, I was really depressed, drinking a lot. And uh, I could sleep on the floor but because beds hurt me because they were too soft and stuff. And I had a couple of, a a friend call me, a guy called me and he's like, Hey, um, you know, lots about bikes. Um, I need help getting a bike, like sorting it out. Like, and I know I would do it for friends most of my life. I've always known a lot about bikes. I raced professionally in the nineties. Uh, but being broke makes you get very entrepreneurial. So I was like, Hey, for like 200 bucks, (laughs) I'll, I'll take you through the whole process. I'll call up the shops and I'll get you a $200 discount, which will absorb that fee to help you out. How's that sound? And he's like, sweet. I made 400 bucks before lunchtime lying flat on my back. Now, for an athlete that's used his body his whole life to make money, that was revolutionary, right? Because we all think that we're as dumb as dog shit. So, right? So I was like, wow, this is a thing. And then, my mate came home that day, I told him about what happened. He goes, hey, you're like a bike broker. I'm like, that's it. That's my thing. Because I needed some sort of an anchor. And I'm like, right, I'm the bike broker. Set up a little bike broker Facebook page, got a little website going, and I had something. So that provided a little bit of money for me to be able to eat and get by for a while. And then literally as soon as I started doing that, people wanted me to start coaching them. 
yeah, because they would see stuff of me riding and then they would see the bike broker and people buying new bikes with one coaching and stuff, but I couldn't walk. So I'm like, well, I actually can't walk, man. So, like, I don't think coaching is going to be possible. So I kind of had to put that on the back burner for quite a while. Um, eventually, and I'm talking four years later or something like that, then I could I could walk okay. And so I got some uh, mountain bike coaching qualifications and started coaching and things like that. My partner's mum, because in the summer, my back felt really good. And in the winter, it felt really bad. And my partner's from the Gold Coast. So she's like, hey, it's really hot on the Gold Coast. You'd love it. When I very first came to Australia, um, I came to the Gold Coast. It was super warm and I loved the, I loved the environment up here. But there was no jiu-jitsu. So anyway, we ended up moving up here. The mum had cancer. We decided to move up here. And so I started doing a bit of bike coaching. The bike, bike broker was doing its thing. And I was in the forest doing like a reconnaissance. Before each coaching session, I'd go out and ride the course, make sure it's safe, all the yeah. rest. I was doing that. I came across a guy who was sitting on a digger, digging up the track, doing some stuff. Um, we had a bit of a chat. Turns out it was the owner of the company. And he invited me to come and trail build for him. Now, it's really, it's quite funny now because like, I hadn't picked, I hadn't been able to pick up anything heavier than a vacuum cleaner for like five or six years. Mm. And now literally I'm in the forest picking up 50 kilo rocks, carrying them out of out of riverbeds up a hill to make this rock thing, right? And and I, I remember him going, Well, just go down there though, pick up those rocks and bring them up here. And I was like, holy shit, how am I gonna do that? Like I was terrified me picking up a rock but I'm like crap I gotta I don't know like I'll just try you know like and I was terrified and it was physically it was just incredibly difficult um and so I got through the first three months of doing that and then he goes hey like I was loving it I would wake up and like we start work at six in the morning I'd be waking up at 4 30 doing yoga and stretching and stuff like this like I've still got my I can probably turn this can I and knock things over, but I always have all my mats and workout stuff and things on. Like I, I will lie on the sofa, but for the most part, I spend all night sitting on the Swiss ball and balancing on this thing and doing the stretching and mm. and all that. Right. So um, he goes, look, we've got a big project coming up. In this, in this forest, it's going to be like an eight, nine-month project. You'll be living out there and hiking for hours a day and building all these trails. And I was like, wow, that sounds mad. You know, um, and it was, it was just incredible. You know, like I love being physically active. I love being outdoors. I can't sit down for very long. Um, I love challenges. It seemed like something... It was a world first what they were doing. So I'm like, yeah, like this is cool. It's kind of meaningful. Uh, and I just like trying to push myself all the time. You know, like what can I do? Like where can I get back to? How physical can I make my life and what can I survive? It's a fine that? line though, huh? 
like figuring out that line and not pushing yourself too hard. But when you actually do work, I don't really have that line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, the thing is with injuries, it's like if you go too far, you're going to hurt. Yeah. That, well, not really. Like, if you push it, no, not really. Like, I was just like, I'm just going to, like, like for me going, what I'd gone through, even just building the local trails, I thought was like insurmountable for me. Like it was, it couldn't have, if you'd told me two years before when I was crawling around the house that I'd be doing that, I would never have believed you. You know, like I came, I came close to suicide twice because of the pain and the immobility and, and all that sort of stuff. And then two years later to be able to do that, I was just like, this is like no, like part of part of like I guess my mental rehabilitation, the the the, the turning point for me was um, when because it was a work cover thing because essentially I'd hurt myself working. Then you're invested in your own misery to get the payout, right? The more pain and misery you're in, the bigger your payout, and you're constantly questioned buy work cover and your lawyers and everything else about how bad it is. There's a part of you that wants to downplay it. I'm a macho guy and it's not that bad, but then they really need to know the truth. And so when you tell them the truth about just how bad it is, they don't believe you. And so... You're, you're, you're emotionally and physically invested in your own misery to get the result that you want, right? To get a big payout for what you're, what you're, what you're owed. Um, to this date, it was four years ago I won that court case. I still haven't got a dollar. Yeah? Mm. I still don't have a dollar. Because I said to them, I don't care anymore. Because my mental and physical well-being is worth, as soon as I decided that I was actually emotionally and physically invested in my own misery, and as soon as I decided to like let that go and decide to move forwards, and as soon as I started building this new life and it started kind of happening and unfolding, I was no longer invested in the past. Hmm. Yeah. And so all I do every day, like, Today's recovery day for me. I still ride six, seven, eight hours a day, most days of the week if I'm not working. I get up in the morning, I'm on my bike at six, I'll get home at three, stretching, you know, like if I'm not trail building or I'll be up at 4.30, 5 o'clock stretching, then I'll trail build all day, come home, do yoga and stuff. Like mm. that's what I do. And um, I just... I mean, in terms of the risks that I take on my bike and stuff like that, yes, that's managed. Yes, there's things that I won't do that when I'm riding with friends who are younger or whatever who are doing certain things, hitting big jumps and stuff like that, then then I do think back to the consequences of what could go wrong and where I was. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that, yes. In terms of me actually physically pushing myself to exhaustion and stuff like like at work the other week I got a little back tweak. Turns out it was something to do with my bike setup. But 
we were lifting and moving big rocks that day and I just, my ego, I had to swallow my ego because my ego is like, I had to say to the guys, look, I can't, I can't do that. I'll do something else. I grabbed my fire rakes and I went and raked the trail and did other things. But that self-preservation versus your ego is a, is a big battle because I wanted to jump on there and start trying to move these big rocks. But then my brain goes back and remembers what it was like crawling around the house, mm. you know, which these young guys whom I'm working with don't know anything about. They couldn't imagine that. They're, they're infallible and invincible at their age. Mm. They haven't had a catastrophic injury like that. On the other hand, I don't like to not contribute equally. So it's a, then it's a balancing act between, you know, but then we've got kind of specialist tasks in a way. The guy's 31 years old, he's six foot four and 130 kilos, and he's a, he's a mountain of a dude. He can move 200 kilo rocks around, right? Okay, you're good at that. You like doing that, so go do that. Like, I'm 50 years old with a broken body. I'm not going to go and risk it doing that. Yeah. yeah, so, so yeah, there is a measuring thing. There is a remembering of, of, of what it was like. And there's, I have a greater appreciation of my body and stuff now than I probably ever have. But that happens with age, right? Mm. You know? Yeah, you learn a lot. You, uh, yeah. But that's like a, um, it's real difficult. It takes a long time oh, to actually like understand the feeling of your body and sensing it all. And to be honest, like when you see kids doing jujitsu when they're babies standing up in base and how they move like a little kid. Um, yeah, it's just, um, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but yeah, it's, uh, can you pause the video for two seconds? So yeah, I can go the look. yeah. Yeah. No Is worries. That's all right. Cool. Thank you. All right, guys, we're back from the break. Now, I just wanted to, just talking about um, recovery modalities, what you're doing now, you just talked about ice, um, kind of the ice therapy, cold therapy that you do. Um, in terms of modalities that people can use and just if there's any general day-to-day stuff that you do that helps um, keep your body healthy, boost your immune system, you know, especially now while people are stuck at home, everyone's in fear and, you know, a bit restricted. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think having spent years and years and years at home, like I, I, when I hurt my back, I was living on a floor. Then I was living in a caravan for like six months, a very small one. Um, then when I moved into a house, I wasn't comfortable out even going downstairs. Like I got used to small spaces. And then I was living in the house and pretty much just being pretty much confined to the house for years. I didn't go out and see friends. It took a long time for me to start going down to Leverage, for example. Hmm. And her would be the first to tell you that I was—I I wasn't myself. I'd go down there. I'd be like, really, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the black belt standing at the front. Like I wanted to just kind of be in the background and kind of. Now you're um, pretty fragile. <laughs> very, time, very. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and just very 
I don't know. It was such a such a culture shock for me. And it's very funny because I, I'm used to standing and competing in front of hundreds and thousands of people and, and standing in front of an academy full of people and teaching and having that confidence. And then, like, I couldn't even go to the supermarket. I, I Like, when I would have hundreds of spasms a day that would floor me. And when you try and go into the public and you collapse at Centrelink, screaming in agony, you collapse at the supermarket and drop all your groceries and you, it, it completely crushed me as a person and I couldn't go out. I was too scared to leave the house. Um, you know, I go to the dog park. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I'd have my headphones on and, and you just become a complete recluse. So what people are going through now with being at home, if I... If I, it's one of the reasons I can't stay indoors now. Like if I if I come home and I'm I sit around the house for half a day, I think I've still got PTSD from that long period of kind of being confined to home. Like I start I get cabin fever very 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 easily. I've got to get out of the house and do stuff. Uh, and and for for people who are not used to that, who in Melbourne are now going through those sorts of things again and again mm-hmm. and again. Um, my heart goes out to them because I, you know, they, they don't have a reason other than the whole COVID thing. Like they could be physically fine, you know, um, but the mental toll that it takes on you on, on you is incredible. So mentally and physically, the two go hand in hand. That you have to have a routine. You have to have a list of things that you do every day. Yeah, mm. right. And so my list when I was fit and healthy used to start off with go ride 100 kilometres, then do yoga, then have lunch, then sleep, then go to jiu-jitsu for three hours, Mm. then do this. So when I got really messed up at home, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start making lists to do each day. And it would start with get out of bed, Mm. go to the bathroom, Brush your teeth, have a shower, yeah. Get onto the mat. Like I'd have mats in my lounge all the time and I would like get on the mat and I would try and stretch and I would try and do things. And by making a list and then ticking off the things as you go, it shows progression. You look at the list and you cross off something and you can see the things that you did before that and it shows that you're moving forwards, Mm. yeah. So like I made contact with a guy a couple of days ago who's, you know, broken his back or something riding motocross. And I reach out to people online who have had accidents and stuff. And what got me through was a mantra that I came up with, which is, well, it's probably not very original, but it was mine, which is any progress is progress. It doesn't matter what part of your life, whether you're studying or whether you're recovering from injury or, or whatever it is, any progress is progress. And that what you see as a progress marker changes. So progress pre-back injury was riding 100 kilometres was good. Mm. <laughs> and that changed to being able to actually get out of bed was good. So early on, 
I would just be incredibly depressed that I was constantly comparing who I was now to who I was. So looking back, depression is a consequence of looking back and anxiety is a consequence of looking too far forwards. Mm. So, right, because you can't be anxious about the past. You can't be depressed about the future, Mm. right? So when I gradually started, that's what I mean by being invested in misery in the past. As soon as I gave up the idea that I needed to be miserable to be able to win my court case and be successful with that and that I no longer cared, like I turned up to a meeting with work cover and I basically said, I don't care anymore. And they were astounded, yeah. right? I mm. probably thought it was some cunning, cunning plot, but I just mm. went, look, I don't care. I said, I'm over it. Okay, it's been years and I don't care. Like, I'm happy. My body's working. I've stopped doing what you wanted me to do because I had to go to all their physiotherapy and get all the crap done that they wanted. Mm. Um, and so as soon as I started moving forwards, things started happening really well. So I stayed attached to that. So in terms of establishing a routine, every single morning I wake up and I get on my mat and I do like mobility stuff. Some would call it yoga, but I can't hold like yoga poses for a long period of time because of my back. Yeah, yoga can go a bit too far sometimes. Well, I just found like, like I started doing yoga and I like it. I did it for a long time and I really like it, but holding a pose for more than like five or 10 seconds hurt. As you get older, like stretching for long periods of time isn't as important as maintaining mobility. So stability and mobility are your your two friends, right? Mm. Jiu-jitsu, surfing, rock climbing, doesn't matter what it is, stability and mobility, right? So if you sit down for long periods of time, you're going to get gluteal atrophy, basically your ass muscles are going to get weak, your core is going to turn to garbage, it's the middle of your body. You've got to look after it, right? So I wake up in the morning. I go through my little routine. I've got my Swiss ball thing there. I sit on that a little bit just to get all my all my core muscles firing in the morning. Then I go do whatever it is for the day, which is usually some sort of a physical thing. Mm. Um, but in terms of mentally, I still have my checklist. I still write down everything that I want to accomplish that day. I still tick it off and cross it off. The podcast isn't there. <laughs> it's going to get crossed off once I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just a part of, like, what I do. And, it's you know, like, you've got to create habits. Yeah, so you repeat the same as muscle memory, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got physical muscle memory and you've got mental muscle memory. And so if you want to change your lifestyle. If you're overweight or if you're unhealthy or if you're lazy or or three of those things usually and you want to make a change, then you're going to have to, like, you can fake it till you make it, right? You can do that for sure, yeah? You know, like, you just do it. Just pretend you're something else, you know? Like, there's hundreds of movies about people that have pretended to be something that they're not and they become that thing, you know? So you are what you do, yeah? Like you might not lift weights now, but if you just go, you know what? I'm just going to start lifting weights. Mm. Guess what? 
your body's going to start growing, you're going to start craving certain nutrients, and eventually you're going to start looking like you lift weights. Yeah, so you just start doing those things. Yeah, just just start faking it. If you and and like I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm very interested in psychology, um, specifically sports and behavioural psychology. So Anthony Robbins is a, is a great. For example, when I was sitting in my bed and I couldn't walk or move very much, then the way that I would start to counter my depression because your physiology affects your mentality, right? When you sit upright and straight, you feel different than when you're all bent over. Mm. What are depressed people and people in pain like? Hunched over. Hunched over, right? I'm sitting in bed, so I'm like, right, that's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to sit upright in bed, right? And literally like that, I, I, I couldn't walk, but I'm going to sit upright in bed. And instantly, after a few minutes, you feel better. And then all your postural muscles, because you're trying to sit upright, your postural muscles become stronger. Mm. And eventually, sitting upright and being upright and having better posture becomes normal, becomes who you are. And then, yeah, it just, you know, like small things like that make a big difference. And a lot of people aren't even aware that they exist. And you know, eventually I kind of got into dog training a bit and stuff like that. And dog training and teaching jiu-jitsu are very similar. Mm. <laughs> so, but the, yeah, but the yeah. thing with the habits is it takes like, in terms of psychology, like 30, maybe 30 to 45 days, maybe 60 days to get into a new it. habit. Yeah, you've got to wrap it, right? So you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Until, and then after that, after that initial month or two, then it's in your memory, and then you can like just easily do it. But you got to go through yeah. that hard first part and actually, actually show up and do the thing. Yeah. And that's sort of the concerning thing with the with the lockdown from going from two weeks to a month to oh over a year, eighteen months, whatever. It's like after the after four to six weeks. There is a new normal because it's been, from a psychological perspective, it's very um, fascinating to watch. But uh, yeah, it's it's all... because people get fixated on the goal. Yeah, people who are struggling are like, six weeks, I'm going to get through this. In the military, they do it too, right? Mm. So one of the ways that they break soldiers down when they're going through selection for SAS and stuff like that is they go all right. When you get to the top of the mountain over there, there's going to be a guy there. Like they haven't slept for three days. They've had no food. Get to the top of the mountain. It's only another 12-hour hike. You get up there, there's going to be food and rest, and you're accepted. When they get up there, what happens? There's a guy there going, hey, look, see that mountain over there? When you get to that one, and that's what they want to try and do is to try and get that sort of, to get you to not be fixated on one particular thing. Yeah, Hmm. and that's why I think, you know, suicide rates and all the rest and, you know, the the, the mental harm that's been done by by these constantly changing lockdowns, there's just no security. Like there's no, for, for people who are used to some sort of a security, they're used to getting up and going to work and coming home and seeing the wife and going to the movies and doing these things as well as we're incredibly social creatures. 
That's what separates humans from a lot of other species. We're incredibly social. We work best in groups. That's how we solve problems. That's where we get our strength from. That's what society is all about. And now people are locked down as individuals and suffering alone. And, and it, it, it terrifies me to see what's going on down there because the small little dose of it that we've got up here, like I, did, I just completely ignored it, right? <laughs> I just ran hmm. into the forest. I, just, I would get dressed up in my high-vis outfit and go to work every day for free. Yeah, I'd just go build trails every morning and keep the same routine because I knew how important that routine was to me. Mm. Um, but when you've got police and army around stopping you doing that and you, know, you throw in jail and find and all the other rest, then that's a completely different, that's a, that's a whole nother, another level of, of, of you know, mental gymnastics that you have to do to be able to get through that. And the majority of people are not equipped for that. Just yeah, well, so the confusion, yeah, I think uh, the confusing thing, the, the mixed messages, the, oh, this is safe, that's not safe, this is good, this is bad. Oh, good. No, yeah. they don't help. And, and mm. this, it's yeah. Like it, negative, like, negative, positive news. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's and people, to, it's like if you having a goal and achieving it, like you were saying before, having the goal, that's like in the in the military. If you're on the offensive, like the SEALs would be more doing like offensive and like do, doing, having operations rather than sitting and defending a place, waiting for the people, waiting to be attacked, you know, and there's a psychological difference between those. Um, yeah, think- between those like forms of thinking and if the goal keeps changing then it takes a strong will to sort of get through that and because, part because of the military got- will be breaking people yeah we well yeah it does it does break people for sure you mm. know like regard like for example um if you're married for example and you love your partner and you used to seeing them all the time and then you go away for a couple of weeks and you say hey I'll be home in two weeks. And then you call each other every couple of nights and reassure each other and things like that. And then you start to get excited about seeing each other again and things like that. And then the day before you go, oh, look, I'll be back in another two weeks. Yeah. Mm. Right? Yeah. That that, the excitement that you feel to accomplish and succeed and, and achieve that goal and to be able to see that person, the excitement that you, the, all the adrenaline that you get is now crushed and now you have to suffer through another. But if you'd originally said, I'll see you in four weeks, you wouldn't go through that same suffering, but you might in four weeks. Yeah. So the fact that they are constantly changing the goalposts and people are becoming fixated on the goalposts, or as I expect people are probably doing now, is the opposite, is that they're giving up. Mm. I think people are just going, you know what? I'm going to give up. I'm not going. There is no goal. There is no end to this, and I'm going to give up. Yeah, and they, won't, they won't release those numbers because it's against and, the – because it would be too devastating to the community, so they're not going to release those numbers. Well, and it's I, like the, the intelligence of the of the elite 
outweighs the wisdom of the people, which I think it's actually back to front. But um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I go down a whole rabbit hole. Yeah, there, it's but like, I, but yeah, I think that it's it's very difficult. If you'd asked somebody two years ago, before any of this came up, do you trust politicians? Yes or no? Everyone's going to go no. Like, why would you, right? Any politician doesn't matter. Yeah, and inherently we don't trust them. That because they're humans with a lot of power. And you get any human with a lot of power, yeah, they're going to fail. They're going to be human. Every almost every president of the United States has shown us that they're human. They're not superhuman. Mm. So it's a very, very difficult situation because nobody knows who to trust. Yeah, like the most basic question, if you look at this whole COVID thing is, was it planned or was it an accident? And nobody really truly knows. Yeah, like it depends on your belief system and how you've been brought up and where you are in your life and many, many other factors, you know, to think that some guy sold a bat in some market and then suddenly this worldwide, like... Yeah, we could go down rabbit holes for hours talking about it and let it scratch the surface. But just in terms of, like, people surviving at home, going through this isolation that I've gone through, if they can't leave their house for more than an hour, my advice is start making lists, yeah? Start making a routine. Don't rely on the fact that, you know, like the majority of people are being taken care of financially, so your bills are covered. Sure, businesses are collapsing and, you know, whatever you focus on will be whatever you become. So if you focus on the collapse of your business, if you start worrying about that and thinking about the future, again, the future is, anxiety is future-based. So the one thing that got me through was learning to be present. Yeah, not worrying about tomorrow, not thinking about what happened yesterday. That's what a list is good for. So I get up tomorrow, I open my diary. It says one hour of yoga. It's the first thing on my list. So I get up and do my hour of yoga. Then I brush my teeth. Then I make my breakfast. Then I get the kids up, whatever it is, whatever it is. And I start ticking things off and I can see progress throughout the day. And that goes right through until the evening time. And then I turn the page and I do what's on the next page. Get up, do your hour of yoga, go do this, drop the kids off to school, blah, and you just keep working through that day, day to day to day. And if you if you start thinking about how things used to be, I used to make 100 grand a month running this business, guess what? You're going to become depressed because you're focused on the past. If you then start going, where's this going? When's it going to end? Mm. You know? Like what am I going to do six months from now? The mortgage that you're thinking too far into the future and you're going to inevitably become anxious. The only way to not suffer this like bipolarity between depression and anxiety is to stay present. And the best way to get through that is to have a daily list, to have a daily routine that you do. Yeah, I'm sure your day-to-day stuff might change a little bit, but you have to have a routine for you personally. You get up and you do your hour of yoga or mobility stuff or whatever it happens to be, you know, and if you're not the sort of 
if you need variety built in, well, guess what? Tomorrow's Swiss ball day. So then mm. you're going to research all these different Swiss ball exercises. Tomorrow morning I'm waking up, I'm going to do 10 different Swiss ball exercises and that's the start of my day and then I take the kids to school and whatever happens, happens. But that's the best way to survive any sort of isolation stuff. Yeah. No? All right. Uh, I think we can leave it there. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Um, yeah, if you just wanted to promote anything, I don't know if there's anything to promote right now with everything shut down, but, uh, you know, I would, I, like your business, okay. your Facebook page, whatever, if you uh, want. Or just... what, I, what I would like to know, right, mm. because probably all of your podcasts are about other people, right, mm. and there's quite a few people who are curious about you. Mm. Have you done a podcast with yourself? Probably not. <laughs> uh, no, but um. So, yeah, so what, what your, your what brown are you? Purple or brown now? I'm brown now. Hey, yeah. was it recent? Yeah, it was. Uh, when did I think October? End of October, start of November, when Professor came. Yeah. Yeah. So that was so uh, how, pretty full on. So, so for you with your your journey, so. What what happened with your arm? Because I don't know exactly. You've probably told me roughly. Was it something you were born with? Was it an accident that you happened? Or uh, I th- basically it was like started with my elbow. Um, but like you said before about breaking your back, breaking your uh, body, doing extreme stuff. Because um, I was like into triathlons uh, about fifteen years ago or so. Get, you know, full on sort of got into coaching uh, the local club on, um, and I'll do a half Ironman, Ironman, but um, I'd never trained properly because like I had sort of injuries and then my elbow was sort of starting in that process. Um, but yeah, basically started with a sore elbow, had like um, arthritis uh, it started off being seronegative arthritis, but then I sort of, um, in treating that, I hurt my hand. Uh, so there's no cartilage in the hands on that side anymore. And sort of, I've always had I've got issues with the other joints, but that's sort of the main two things. I tore my hip about two years ago. That's actually tearing my hip is probably the only jujitsu injury. Everything's all on the same side? Everything's on the right side. So like... I think there's an issue with like uh, blood flow, nutrients, but um, doing jujitsu is actually help ha- actually helps keep me mobile and all that, and helps with all that uh, the depression and anxiety and all that sort of stuff as well. But physically, it keeps me mobile. I actually hurt my back a couple of days ago digging in the garden a little bit too much. Um, yeah, and that's from like not being able to decompress the spine and stuff at home. And you, so I actually had to go to the osteo yesterday. Life. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've changed lifestyle as well, right? So you used to be on the mat all the time and doing things. Yeah. And now you're probably a little more sedentary because of the lockdown. Yeah, and I'm yeah. trying to just I'm trying to do a lot more physical stuff, sort of in the garden and that. But I'm trying not to overdo it. But I guess I did the other day. Um, but he went to the osteo and they're seeing one or two patients a day and to only emergencies. So um, that actually helped, but 
Um, it was just for a day. It was like spasming and I couldn't sit down, couldn't stand up, couldn't lie down. It was painful. So I got a sort of taste for a day and it's like um, my body telling me, hey, sh- you know, take care of yourself. So I got some exercises to do and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I'm sort of in the middle of um, rearranging stuff. So my gyms, uh, all, my mats are covered in all this furniture and stuff. So I just got to um, – clear all that up and be able to just go in there and sort of do my daily exercises again. So for you, yeah, look, hmm? for, for you, look, for you looking at black belt, for example, right? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I know, I know you're like, Oh, but it's, 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 it's a long way away. It's not uh, something I'm really aimed at, but it's just around the corner for you. So yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, how are you feeling about that? Uh, look, uh, I get very excited about brown belt. I look, yeah. I'm, I'm so happy I got brown belt, but um, uh, when I get my black belt, I want to be able to sit there, demonstrate the techniques. Even if there's something I can't do properly, at least be able to show it somehow yeah. to be able to. You don't, you don't need to be good at everything. No, but like That's not your the job, physical right? ability of being able to, like the certain. So I can't physically move the hand. Yeah. That that's that's as far as that risk goes. Yeah. And like both sides, it doesn't. Has so that added motivation for you to try and get that going? To try and make your hand work in a way that it, it's not going to? Or uh, are you like, or are you going to go like, um, I'm a little bit different. Like my hand doesn't do that. Um. Well, my motivation's more to um sort of want to strengthen and fix everything around it, make sure it's the whole thing supported as much as possible. Um, and like with diet, the information's actually like, you know, diet's been pretty shit the last, probably the last month or so, but the, um, <laughs> the, I've been sort of on top of the inflammation in terms of, you know, and like on top of my body weight uh, since, yeah, since I lost weight, I haven't put it back on yet. Um, that was from when I was with Steve Maxwell a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, but yeah, it's like with diet and jujitsu, I was sort of managing it really well. I was actually getting better and better. And I even competed in January, which, um, do you find guys affects your inflammation quite a bit? Do guys fix it? No. Do you, do you find that your diet mm. affects your inflammation quite mm. a bit? It does? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Especially like, um, cause like back in the day, like, you know, when I was doing triathlons, I was seeing a dietitian, like, you know, I was following all the things, the high carb, low fat, but the low fat's the killer. Um, I respond way well to the high fat diets. Um, I did carnivore diet for you six months. Yeah. Uh, I haven't so much probably since the COVIDs. I've been like going deep down rabbit holes in sort of other podcasts, other sort of things <laughs> and yeah. like medical, like spiritual, aliens. The reason I say that is because uh, you've heard of Jordan Peterson. He's a really famous psychologist. Yeah, yeah, I was a huge follower yeah, so, of his. Yeah, okay. So you know his daughter had all sorts of issues and then yeah. she went off. And then 
during the podcast with uh, Jordan Peterson and Joe, then Jordan Peterson brought that up about his daughter. Mm. And then Joe got her on the show. And then that, well, you know, the kind of tidal wave that that's kind of started with mm. this kind of carnivore diet. Yeah. And it's funny because my partner and I were talking about just before about what suits you kind of historically, mm. like where your family comes from and your genetics and stuff like this um, influences it a lot. Um, so, well, that, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to get back in touch with the genetic, epigenetic sort of memory. Um, so where do you feel you feel best on, on like a high-protein, high-fat diet, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Like I was sort of doing keto. I've sort of tried the Gracie diet. I've done all sorts of diets, sort of vegan. Yeah. Done like uh, metabolic diets. Like I change like I don't have, I, I don't say that I have a diet, right? I'm aware of what all these different foods do, the pros and cons. So like recovery days, because I'm, I'm not doing high intense exercise, I have, a lot more fat and a lot more protein on my rest days and recovery mm. days. Yeah. And then if I have intense days, then I have a lot more carbs. Mm. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have like a fixed belief. I kind of just, I go, okay, so these things do this. So on this day, I'm going to eat more of this. And on this day, I'm going to eat more of that. But um, obviously I'm interested in what, people are experiencing themselves. Well, the, the main thing that I'm that I've stuck to and it's really good um is pretty much intermittent fasting. Like I won't have breakfast for a while. Um yeah. I might have like at the moment without moving like unless I'm doing a lot of a lot of uh, movement exercise and stuff, I only really need to have one meal a day. You know, like a, a dinner. I might have you know, I might have something small, like a snack and then dinner. Um, but yeah, I've just had my coffees in the morning, but that's a whole other story, whether or not that's good, but. And you're basically isolated all day. You're stuck at home and can't do anything. Yeah. But that, if I didn't have to do jujitsu and didn't visit family, I would be at home stuck. I'd be comfortable stuck at home. Like, but jujitsu is so beneficial to me that it sort of gets me out of that mode and gets me out there, gets me meeting people, gets me sharing my uh, immune system, my microbiome and all that. Uh, yeah. So it, it kind of pulls you out of your shell. So you're, you're like, you're pretty comfortable by yourself. But uh, I used to have a stutter. Like I wouldn't be able to talk like this, like on a podcast, I'd be like, you know, start entering a fair bit, especially get nervous or if I lose my train of thought, I'll be like, oh my God, or, you know, but a lot of, cause I, I train quite a few juniors who are like, I've got, you know, one client who's got Asperger's and things like this as a junior elite athlete. And what I find is that there's a huge proportion of people who have, anxiety or depression or mental stuff going on who pursue endurance sports because it, it's a good it's a good way to stay away from other people for long periods of time because you're training by yourself it's also a really good way to stay away from home <laughs> mm. right and it's usually some form of escapism 
So do you, like, I, d- I don't know anything about your past. We've never spoken about any of it. Mm. But stuttering and the comfortable with isolation, staying away from other people and the history of endurance sports suggests that jiu-jitsu is probably very good for you, like dragging you out of your Dragging you out of your shell, forcing you out of your comfort zone. Do you yeah, think it sure. was uh, it was very helpful in you overcoming that that speech impediment and having the self confidence to? I mean, it wasn't really an impediment. Like it was just like occasionally I'll stutter, like on on a few words here and there, but mainly sort of from nervous and. Um, but like it wasn't like a huge. I don't remember it as a huge thing. Like until my friends um, reminded me a few months ago, I was like, oh yeah, I did sort of have a little stutter. But in in saying that, when I spoke to friends, I never had a stutter. I was always comfortable and open and had like... When you're around um, people, you're comfortable. Yeah, and I'll be very open and, and stuff, um, but which, you know, le- leads to being able to be taken advantage of, but that's all part of uh, life and learning and stuff. Because I think um, empathy, um, very empathetic. So it's like, I think as a kid, that was like a, led to a lot of gullibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you hope that everybody's kind of like you, trustworthy and caring and things like that. But but I don't know that's not true. Yeah, there's a lot of narcissists out there, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much the same. You know, it's probably why I can relate to you. I can kind of mm. get a sense as to what's going on. Um, uh, but I'm, I, I think, I think, I don't know. I think I would like the whole world to do jujitsu. I think it's such a, it's such an instrumental art in the development of humans. When I've, when I've, spoken to my instructors uh like high level judo guys who've taught at the Kota Khan eighth ninth degree black belts in judo it's compulsory at school in japan taekwondo my eighth ninth tenth degree black belts in taekwondo and hapkido have told me about how beneficial those arts are in the schools you know now you've got jiu-jitsu in the Arab Emirates, for example. That happened, what, 15 years ago or something? Mm. Then feeling, the, knowing who I was prior to jiu-jitsu and then seeing, like, how much of an impact it has on me as an adult, even now, like, I haven't trained in months. And then when I go back to it, I'm like, wow, this is just incredible, you know? the closeness and unity of it um, is different than like in a karate school where you're kicking and punching and the object is really to hurt each other. The, the, the unity that a jiu-jitsu class offers, I think is unique of all sports and all martial arts. And, and to, to see what's happening around the world with all the different jiu-jitsu academies not being able to practice properly it's, it's amazing seeing them start to open again hmm. and seeing coaches who maybe beforehand were maybe just a little bit full of themselves, you know, making, making good coin and, you know, 
they got their black belt and they got some pretty successful academies going on. And seeing them lose it all, almost all lose all of it. Mm. And then really truly appreciate like what they have, you know, not even from a financial point of view, like, like that's not what they're feeling that they're losing. You know, it's they're starting to recognize, and I'm sure it's the same for all the students too, that the students themselves are going, wow. Like, this is what jiu-jitsu brought me. Like, I mean, I did, I've still got thousands and thousands of marketing forms from students about what it is, why they wanted to join, join jiu-jitsu and learn martial arts. Like, self-defense is like fifth on the list, fourth or fifth on the list. Mm. Now, like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not why they're there. Yeah. Most people are there to get fit and meet people, yeah, and build self build self confidence. Like they are the top three things. You well, know, also like, builds community, which um, yeah, yeah, friends. has been devastated lately. So just hmm. our uh, conception of communities changed. So well, it's going to have to change for this new normal. But um, the community aspect is huge. The smashing of the ego aspect is huge. And like, yeah, uh, if there was one thing I would recommend for uh, the betterment of your life, jiu-jitsu would be it, hands down. Because like, apart from going to war, <laughs> um, you're not going to learn a lot of the lessons that you do sort of through jiu-jitsu and like this adversity, humbling aspect. Yeah, adversity builds intimacy. And, and the thing with uh, jiu-jitsu like a, or the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu that we always on the ground fighting, tapping each other, getting the ego, that forces that forces the dissolving of the ego as opposed to in the, the older traditional martial arts where they couldn't go 100%. They couldn't, they never really knew. Like they wouldn't punch each other as hard as they could, you know, um, within the school anyway sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that um, you you go through different periods, right? So, like as you go through the different grades, you know, uh, things change a lot. You know, when you're a white belt, you get beaten up a lot, you know, and so you you're very humble and like willing to learn and eager to learn. And then you get your blue belt, and you get a little bit of an ego. You're like, oh, I know some stuff, and you can beat up your friends at barbecues and stuff like that. And then you lose and, your brain, that blue belt as well. Yeah, and, and like you can beat up some white belts and stuff and there's a little bit, you know, there's a lot of white belts that have left, you know, there's not that many left and one of the few and then you get to purple belt, you know, and like purple belt is kind of like the belt of evil, right? <laughs> so, you know, like it takes a really long time to get off purple belt, you know, purple belt purgatory. Mm. But now you're, you've got almost same skills as the black belts like black belts have to watch out for purple belts right because they can get you but mm. purple belt is not going to probably get caught by the blue belt or the white belt so he's got a bit of an ego and i think that purple belt is really where you start to get your ego coming in like i'm i really like there's no one in the street's going to take me like that you know like it's not going to happen you know and i think that you have to get through that and then when you get to brown belt 
because you're not sure as a purple belt whether you're going to get your black belt or not. Like you really don't know. Like you're really busting your butt and wanting to kick ass and take names and stuff like that to prove that you're worthy of getting a brown belt. But on a, like I kind of see it as like a bell curve, like purple belts at the top. White belt, you're mm. climbing. Blue belt, you're climbing. Purple belt's the top. And then brown belt, you're kind of on your... It's an easier slide down there. You've been through all the hardship. You've learned all the lessons. Like the worst belt to try and get is a blue belt because you don't know anything as a white belt, right? The whole world's against you, right? But as a purple belt, you get a bit of ego. You've got a bit of bravado. You know, you can kick some ass. And you have to kind of let go of that to start getting your brown belt. You know, purple belt, I think, is a lot about favorites. Yeah, you have a lot of favorite techniques that work. And that that that's your security, right? When something happens, bam, here's my favorite combos. Try and handle that. Mm. But brown belt is really about being proficient at a wider range of techniques. Yeah. As about it's about seeing what's possible and what's there, not just your favorite things. You're not going to fall back on your favorites. They're there always, and they probably always will be, but you've got to work outside that repertoire. Yeah. And, but it's a downward slope and you feel it already. Like how much easier is it going to be for you to get your black belt than when you were a purple belt trying to get your brown belt? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's totally different. Right. And I think that that transition, as you move through those different changes in your ego, really is a massive, massive thing. So every single belt has a change in attitude that, that needs to parallel it. You know? And as you, as you move through those belts, that really changes who you, like there's no way that you're the same person at black belt as you were at purple belt, as you were at blue or white belt. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. You're kind of like, it's almost like you, you are leveling up in the game you know, you're going to the next level and then you've got the extra powers and it's like, even just every as a metaphor, belt, it works out well. Yeah, for every belt, I had a mantra that went with it, right? So blue belt was composure under pressure. Yeah? Mm. You're not really good at anything, but under pressure, you've kind of got, you've got an idea as to where you're going and what you should be doing. Whether you can do it or not, who knows? Yeah, right? You're kind of street smart, you know some stuff. Composure under pressure. Purple belt was purely combinations. So you take what you learned as a blue belt, you start to bring things together that work in unison, right? And it's the first time you start to not to fight for a single technique. You're not just trying to choke the guy from the guard and the guy's clearly posturing you and you're never going to get it, right? Because his arms are outstretched. So you start to go, ooh, ooh, ooh outstretched arms so you start to create this combination between your choke which is delivering the arms and the arm bar right so it's all about combinations and then brown belt was have no favorite technique yeah yeah right that's the way i define it so yeah drill the drill the moves you don't know or not your favorite yeah most people start with their wrist locking and stuff like that at brown belt because People are starting to do all these silly things and they, they just open their eyes and rather than just see the choke in the arm bar, there was like a hundred other things they could have done in the meantime, right? Mm. Yeah. In black belt was simply timing. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're not really adding more techniques as a black belt because you've already got a ton on your plate. 
you've got stacks to learn, yeah? But what do you do is brown belt and when do you do it is black belt. That's mm. the way I would put it, yeah? Is choosing the right moment. To, like the perfect technique at the wrong time is the wrong technique. Yeah. Yeah? So just trying to make life easier for yourself, yeah, by not forcing things. So that's what I always see, saw as a transition through the belt and that I was, you know, so when, you know, when I had my like blue, purple, brown and black belt like posts or whatever they were, the things in the academy with the techniques and stuff written on them, then I would always have like a little mantra on them so that there wasn't just a physical thing that you were trying to achieve, like there, that there was a mental and emotional change that you were trying to acquire as well. Mm. Yeah. And, and, it, and it happens anyway for the most part. Yeah, well, I think when you get to a professor's level, he's like, ah, us jujitsu guys, we're lazy. And so he just cuts through all the crap and just like, oh, and it's like he would show you like, oh, just do this slight adjustment and you've just like blown through all the defences and it's like, what the hell was that? And it's like yeah. right in front of you and it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, when, people, when people whinge about pain like, 150 bucks a month for, for, for like classes. I go, okay, try this on for size, right? I would spend $10,000 and travel to the other side of the world to go learn jiu-jitsu. Then I'd spend $500 on a private lesson, yeah? And the yeah. guy would go, ah, just move your foot like this. And that would solve a problem I'd been having for five or six years. And I want to shoot myself in the head because I'm so stupid. Yeah. And you're complaining about paying $150 for this month, a whole month of jujitsu where you can learn all of this stuff and have all these amazing experiences. Try spending 10 grand to learn to move your foot in a certain angle or to have your hip in a certain place. Yeah. And to just feel like you know nothing. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We're talking the same language. And so, but that's unraveling that onion, right? Is that, is that a white belt gets an onion and he's like, okay, I've got the onion. And then the blue belt unravels one layer. And then the next, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's the amazing thing about jiu-jitsu is that there's just, you know, and eventually you get to like Pedro's level where you've got, you know, a slice of that onion underneath a micro, underneath a, um, a microscope and you're looking down at the cells of it mm. and start to understand, you know, like exactly what makes it work. Yeah. yeah it's pretty, 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 much. pretty awesome. It's really but yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough about jujitsu. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Um, I think we'll, I think that's good. I think we'll leave it there. Um, not sure what else to say. <laughs> I think this uh going to be a long one, this one. COVID. Let's get back on the mat and start rolling. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I uh, can't wait. But look, when this started, when the first lockdown happened, I, I pretty much told myself I was under no illusion that um, I pretty much said to myself, uh, I don't think I'm a, we're ever going to do jujitsu again, at least for uh, quite a while. Um, so, um, that's something like that's helped me like sort of 
like accept all that, like um, adjusting the goalposts yeah. and changing and then reaching the that post and then maybe... a long way away, right? <laughs> well, so anything, anything other than the vision yeah. you created is a good mm. thing. But yeah, yeah, it's like it's like, well, I'm not in that mindset of oh, next week I'm going to do. It's like, yeah, I haven't. Um, that might be extreme, but like that's um, that's in the positive for me. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, have um, you had a lot of people like other guys in the academy contacting each other and chatting online and talking about what they're going through? Is like, are you aware of anybody else's struggles or anything like that? Uh, not personally, but I mean, there's a few. We have a um, like a Facebook chat group that people post on. Um, I know a lot of uh, a few of the people are. Uh, I know some of the girls are in contact with each other. I know like a few of the guys, but um, yeah, it's hard. There's unless people sort of uh, go out there, um, put themselves out there, or say, "Hey, you know, I'm feeling down." You, you'd have to actually ask them how you're feeling and go. And Usually, it's like, the worse the people feel, the less they're going to say. Mm, yeah, no. So, what you'll tend to see is, yeah, the pe- people who are usually quite vocal, like this is as someone who's come pretty close to suicide a couple of times and, and I've helped a few people who have come close, then generally beware of people who are normally quite vocal saying mm. very little. Mm. Yeah, the less people say, like you'll get people out there who are like, I'm on the verge of suicide and they'll go on and write like pages and pages and pages mm. about it. They're fine probably, right? Mm. But it's the person who just writes, I'm over it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So for anybody watching this, <laughs> yeah, right, then, you know, like stay in contact with other people and generally the people who are quite chatty online and writing lots, for the most part, I think are okay. But if you suddenly see a big drop in somebody's output, if you see a message that's out of character, reach out to them because when you get down that deep rabbit hole, you're not going to want, you're not, you get to the point where you don't think that it's worth reaching out anymore. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Be kind to each other and don't be scared to reach out and ask somebody if they're okay or not. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you think that someone else is not okay, the best way to start the conversation is to by saying how you're not okay. <laughs> yeah. Open up first. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, just just tell them how you're eating a shit sandwich, and then hopefully their shit sandwich doesn't taste or smell as bad. Yeah, but yeah, when because everybody's suffering. Yeah, especially all the guys in Melbourne. I mean, around the world. And too often, especially as guys, because we don't tend to group form groups the same and open up and express ourselves the same way as like most women do. If a guy contacts you and go, hey, man, how are you doing? I'm feeling shit. I felt really bad and really negative about these things. How are you doing? Mm. Yeah. Then it, can, it just starts the conversation. So... Yeah, it's it's uh, there needs to be more conversations around the mental health aspect of lockdown and what's costing people. But yeah. I think that it's cost, I think it's costing so many people so much 
people are staying quiet about about how they're feeling, you know, because I think that they don't want to confess how they're feeling, how bad they're feeling, because one day the sun's going to come out and COVID will be over and they might regret saying those things. Yeah. Well, it's hard, like, um, yeah, not having a goal and not being able to do a lot of stuff. That's why I've been in the garden building up my veggie patch. And it's like, oh, you know, I have to do it. If I don't have uh, something like that to do, I'm just going to be sitting on the couch and stagnation leads to suffering, you know? And it's yeah. like the stagnation in the mind as well. I don't know how I'd cope with it. I really but, don't. Hmm. But I've sort of been dealing with a lot of these issues for the last five years, a lot of financial and a lot of, um, yeah, going through a lot of stuff in my brain. But um, so I think now I'm actually more prepared to be able to deal with this whole COVID thing. And I'm actually um, in a way more positive mental state, which is ironic, but yeah, I don't know. Um, it's almost like I've been preparing for this for a while and I've sort of gone, I went through a lot of stuff in the last few years, financial and, uh, you know, family stuff and a lot of things and, uh, death of our dogs a couple of, like last year, which was, uh, got to me way more than I thought it would, but, um, yeah, and it's just like a lot of, I went through a lot and I just felt when COVID happened, it's kind of like uh, I've already been through this and then I'm sort of just observing everyone else and everyone's freaking out and going crazy. And um, yeah, and I'm just observing and going, what the hell's going on? It's sort of like a, yeah. And I can, yeah. So it's like, it's tough. And I, I'm not, I've been detaching from like um, social media for ages. So um yeah, I'm not usually online much. So, but um, yeah, because of like, uh, I don't like the dopamine hits with the, the fear, fear, the anger. And it's like, it's just a lot of hatred there. And it's been all filtered and curated. And yeah. And it leads to like the phones and um, the screens that has a negative impact as well. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> That's another rabbit holes, but yeah, just like <laughs> everyone should reach out and yeah. All right, man. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, could talk forever, but um, you need to reach out, reach out to me. I'll keep yeah. an eye on your post if there's anything short and too succinct. <laughs> yeah. If I start blogging again, <laughs> you'll be like, oh my god, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, read some of my like other blogs, I'll seem crazy. <laughs> Uh, I can't wait to come down and join the gang down there again, get on the mat and have a little roll. I can't wait to 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 see you in your brown belt and experience your new brown belt jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, hopefully I get a few weeks to sort of train before we do that, but that'll be awesome. I'll give you a couple of months, how's that? Yeah, yeah, a couple of months, yeah, just... I'm coming for you. Yeah, cobwebs, <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, it's a fight. Say good to the guys down there. If you see them, say good day to Phil and all the crew. Um, guys i love you a lot and i think what you're doing is amazing not just with your podcasts um but with what you're doing with your body and your brain and um pursuing an incredibly difficult uh art with uh some limited capability i think you've got a lot to pass on to the world man you're doing amazing things all right yeah 
Well, what can I say? Thank Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Here we go. Got it out of you. Right. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I'm starving. I'm gonna eat. All right. All right. No worries. Thanks. Thanks for joining us uh, for okay, that long conversation. And yeah, my battery is about to die anyway. So um, I think okay. it just did. <laughs> the battery just died as I'm finishing up. But thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys later. Us. Ciao, ciao. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> All righty, guys. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Rob. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, yeah, I didn't really plan any any questions. And yeah, we spoke for three hours. So it was pretty uh, interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed all that. Um, if there's any questions uh, you you have any comments yeah just leave them down below uh hit that like hit that share uh and just remember to uh reach out to family and friends and yeah just uh keep your networks close and yeah hope you guys enjoyed and we'll catch you next time Us. You look very Vietnam vet with that hat and the, the stars and stripes on your chest. Yes, yeah. The beard and all that. It's uh, Moulin, the Moulin Laver. I was from a <laughs> Vegas shooting range. Um, all the guns, what was it, the seven, I don't know, what was it called, 752 range or something, went and shot a 50 cal. Um, we, we, we were going through. Um, we'll go through the injuries. Um, you went through yeah, the, the old school sort of days. Out on is like when I. It's funny because I was thinking about it today, that um, in like '98 or yeah '98 or something like that, after my first national championships, I did. You know how I said that I was doing flying arm bars in the first competition because I. Mm. Well, I came back to the academy on the Monday morning and got asked, and they're like, hey, show us that move. I landed on my head, and I got complete amnesia. <laughs> no, total. Like, yeah. I lost my whole life. <laughs> so that's, like, everything. I had to relearn my whole life. So that's it's something that kind of, like, we skipped by. But, yeah, so touching on injuries, yeah, that's – because, like, literally – I'd just become the national champion and three days later I didn't know anything about martial arts. Mm. And like all it's right. been a really crazy journey, as you can kind of tell already. Like without yeah. me going into yeah, like, yeah, like well, we could take it from there. We could talk about yeah, that. Sure. We could talk about that yeah. for a bit, that injury. Um sure. and going through amnesia, that sounds pretty pretty full on and like Well, trying to relearn who you are, yeah. you know. And yeah, it's it's pretty diff different. This like the whole history of my martial arts life has been bizarre, and we're just touching on the jujitsu part. Like, you know, I mean, I started training when I was like four years old, and yeah, it's it's been a really bizarre. Everybody that I know says I should write a book, and every time I think about it, I'm kind of too busy to sit down and start doing anything about it. Mm. Because it's just been bizarre, like the whole thing, the whole the whole thing. But um, yeah, wherever you want to start off, or are we already started? Uh, I reckon <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just add that as a bonus at the end. I reckon if you want. Um, yeah, sure, so I think we went for. And if you see me looking at 
the other screen. That's because that's where your face is. So I'm like talking to you. <laughs> Fair enough. You think I'm like, woo. He's lost eye contact. <laughs> because it's so weird looking straight into the camera. It's like yeah, your it's like face is there. When I take photos on my iPhone, I know I'm always looking off to one side. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try and look at the look at the camera so it looks like I'm looking. And then that looks weird. So it's right. 